All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the final edition of the Unslaved podcast for 2018, because, of course, we have a new year coming up very soon. Uh, it's December 30th already. I can't believe how quickly this year has gone by. But here we are. We are very happy to be doing this show with the one and only Ronnie Landis. Uh, his website is Ronnie-Landis.com. And Ronnie is somebody that connected with Michael uh, very recently. He had Michael on his show. So uh, we'll put a link in the description. If you haven't seen that episode, it was a fantastic discussion. And we're very glad to have Ronnie here for the first time on Unslaved, hopefully not the last. He does some absolutely fantastic and inspiring work. And you can go check it all out on his website. But he is a leading expert in holistic health, natural nutrition, and human potential. So he's somebody that's right up my alley as well. Uh, he helps people all the way from driven entrepreneurs, athletes, visionary artists, actors, actresses, intuitive healers, all the way to stay-at-home moms and dads to perform at their best mentality emotionally and physically. Ronnie's work ranges from exploring the fringes of cutting-edge health sciences, food-based nutrition, innovative supplementation strategies, and a deep passion for helping people overcome long-held mental and emotional roadblocks so they can experience every area of their life at their full potential. He's a public speaker, a teacher, a published author of multiple books. He hosts two popular podcasts, a transformation and a peak performance coach. And above all, he is a man who deeply values life and has devoted his life to uplifting and inspiring the lives of as many people as he can reach through his mission, his work and his message. So Ronnie, a beautiful introduction there. Uh, love your website. It looks amazing, very professional. And we're very excited to have you here, my friend. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an incredible honor to be here with both of you, um, you know, to be on the show. I never, I didn't actually anticipate that I would, I would ever be on this show. I, it was always something that I had looked forward to as a possibility. So I'm so glad that it's happened and we got together and it was incredible to have you, Michael, on the show. We've had you twice now. And, uh, you know, really going into your work over all the years, when I first got exposed to your work was just such a, such an incredible moment for me because it puts so many puzzle pieces of all the things that I've been contemplating over um, in terms of psychology, you know, quote unquote, conspiracy theories and the truth movement and trying to put all these these diametrically opposed pieces of the puzzle together in some kind of organized way, some kind of way that made sense and was practical that I could actually do something with instead of just kind of ruminating and thinking like, oh, that's interesting, but moving on with the program. And uh, so your work has been absolutely paramount in my life and uh, just so happy to be here. And with you, David, getting to kind of um, this is the first time that we're talking, but to, to see you and your work and your philosophy um, through the conversations that both of you have had. We're both martial artists. Um, I've been a martial artist all my life since the age of four. So I think there's a there's Excellent. definitely um, a Bushido resonance between us, which I really appreciate for you or from you and how you bring that warrior archetype into all the conversations. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Ronnie. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate that. And uh, Michael, I'd love to turn it over to you. You came across Ronnie's work uh, a while back, was it? How did you come across him? Uh, he contacted me, I think, and we did the two interviews. Uh, and I just thought, you know, he had, his ideas are like he said, he's putting all of these pieces together. You know, the title of this one's Understanding Reality, and you can't unless you understand the reality of your own mind and body. So it starts right there. And for me, you see, meeting, meeting with Ronnie, talking to people like that, and yourself, David, who's involved with the physical culture, it can open those doors that are just theoretical otherwise. If you're talking about shadow work and Wilhelm Reich and all, 
I've resisted it for years because I haven't been really talking to the right crowd. You know, people who are not working with what I consider shadow work, which is body work, which is oriental mysticism. Um, you can't get into the subject matter with people who have no f- clue about that, who are sitting there two, three hundred pounds and weight and, you know, it, it becomes embarrassing to them. And I, you know, I understand that. So it's not something you want to get into really, right? And it's quite involved actually anyway. You know, but it's so much more effortless when you do talk to people like yourselves who who do know that and can apply it. So it was just, I hope we do have Ronnie on, you know, as a very close collaborator with Unslaved and have him back on, because this is absolutely crucial. The state of health today in the world is is very, very uh, poor. And, uh, you know, we need to, it's not about coming out of the head, like a lot of people think, oh, just coming out of the head and get into the body. It's both. It's bioenergetic. It's psychosomatic. And given that people's disc, you say, I mean, look, Name all the evil forces we could. And at the top of those evil forces is the far, is big pharma, isn't it? It's the medical. So the message that Ronnie's teaching all already is, you know, uh, already defending yourself, to put it mildly. Actually, it's doing a lot more than that and taking that edifice down. So that's one of the most evil edifices we know. And yet by the message that Ronnie has and that we have here, that is one of the evils compromised because if you can – Take care of your own health and understand. See, it's not about taking care of your health, even that that's not quite correct. It's understanding what health is, right? Mm. We're back into the fundamentals, the substratum. Taking care of your health is an ongoing process, but it's helped if you actually know what health is, not as it, as it's been defined by these people, but defined by a Paracelsus, you know, or a Bruce Lee or, you know, the Qigong masters and the Aikido masters and stuff, that's health. And it's, and even Wilhelm Reich would be top of the list, you know, of the Western adepts talking about it. So that's, that's basically one. I just have one quick, uh, before we get dive in and get, uh, get uh, Ronnie's response. And I just want to tell members that uh, within the next 24 hours, we'll have a part one of the idealism presentation up. I just finished doing the intro. It's about a two hour length intro. Uh, you don't need much prep for it, although reading my mysticism article and maybe watching some of the other premiums we've done, like mysticism, would be a big help. But nevertheless, the intro will be up on Unslaved Members section real soon, so within the next couple of hours. So look forward to that. Oh, and I'm definitely looking forward to it. I've been editing it um, and making sure it looks good and sounds good. And, guys, this is just exceptional, and I find that uh, this conversation we've been having on Unslaved it's opened so many questions for myself personally on my own personal development journey and researching philosophy and having many conversations with Michael and also other philosophers and other thinkers to try to get a grasp of my view of reality and, and trying to encapsulate all this stuff. And Michael, I find it's always interesting that right at the point when I have a, a, a question that I can't even formulate just yet, but it's there, you come out and you do a presentation on that exact question. So I highly recommend you guys check this out. And I'm looking forward to the series as Michael, as you continue it. Um, and, but Ronnie, let's, uh, let's get into you, man. Give us a little bit more. I gave a brief uh, background there for you. What inspired you to get into health, to get into consciousness, to get into uh, motivating people and helping people and equipping people? Uh, martial arts, was that a big part of it? Give us a bit about your story, man. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the place I usually start with that kind of question is when I was four years old, that the first conscious memory I have as a human being was actually the iconography of Bruce Lee. So I, I don't remember anything before that. All I remember was this movie called Enter the Dragon. And I saw this charismatic, incredibly embodied 
caricature of a superhero in human form. And it kind of left some kind of imprint on me, some kind of imprint on my consciousness because I I didn't have a father in my life. So there was a void in that that kind of archetype from a paternal perspective. And I, I think somehow I drew upon that archetype that Bruce Lee left all of us of what was possible um, in terms of like a real life superhero. And that's something that I'm always drawing on this archetype of a superhero. We obviously have all the, the mythologies and all the great archetypes and the superhero kind of comic books. And I was raised with all that stuff. So that all left a little bit of a mark on my psychology in terms of like what's really possible. Because one of the one of the problems that I see in our world is this this um, reliance on mediocrity. In fact, just a quick note, I think you'll appreciate this, Michael. One of the great books that I have right here is from Walter Russell. Oh, uh, beautiful. Yeah. And, um, you know, genius inherent in anyone. One of the great quotes that actually um, was very pivotal in my consciousness was the quote that he left over, which is mediocrity is self-inflicted. Genius is self-bestowed. And just kind of a side note on on that, what's really interesting for me about Walter Russell and the synchronicity factor of everything is that um, I found out that Walter Russell, he was born on May 19th, and he died at the age of 92 on May 19th. That that's not auspicious enough. Well, what's weirder for me when I read that book was that my birthday is May 19th. So that was, and I was synchronistically kind of led into his work um, through a number of different portals. And the reason I bring that up is because my entire life, I think I've been, I've been pursuing against this inner adversarial force that's tried to keep me. And I think this is one of the things we deal with in our world is, is keep us locked into mediocrity. That's what the standard American diet is essentially symbolically is this, this, mediocre way of living, right? Living below the line, living below our potential. And so what really got me into the food thing and the the health thing is that I was a, um, a long time, lifelong athlete, martial artist. I was actually an Olympic hopeful in Taekwondo and um, pursuing also a basketball career at one point. And I had a knee injury at 18 years old, I had my first, um, immobility before then I, I've had broken noses and broken fingers and dislocated shoulders and, and toes and stuff like that. But I'd always been able to train. I'd always been able to work through it with my body. But when I had my first knee injury and surgery, that was the first time that I actually had to re I had to readjust my, my, my thought process in terms of like, what am I going to do with my life? It, can I keep pushing through? Because I can't actually train myself out of this now. And, you know, as, as athletes, you probably, you know, David, I'm sure, you know, Michael, like our athletic culture is full of people that are, are essentially medicating what they can't deal with emotionally. Cause maybe they don't have the tools. A lot of athletes come out of very um, impoverished situations and that's what gives them their fire, but they don't have the tools to deal with their inner angst. So the athletic pursuit and the training becomes the vehicle for dealing with their issues. Very, very similar for me. That was the first time that I actually had to go back into the philosophy of martial arts. I had to, I had to train my, I had to put my mind in the mental gym and I got deep into reading and voracious about learning, um, you know, about peak potential and, and mental mastery. And, and I got into personal development. I got deep into like the work of people like Tony Robbins and realizing like, whoa, I can actually change my psychology. I can change my thinking. I can empower myself by the, the way that I think. 
And so that got me to really start thinking about life differently. Long story short, I kept going with my pursuits. Um, and then I eventually figured out that one of the reasons I wasn't healing from my knee injury as quickly was because I was basically on a processed food diet. You know, I hadn't really understood what real food was. And so I started learning, I started looking up on YouTube University about, you know, like paleolithic diets or natural food or organic food. And eventually I got into vegetarianism. Um, before then, I didn't actually know that like vegans or vegetarians were a real thing. You know, as funny as that sounds to me now, I, I thought that was like a myth or something, or that was like some idea people threw around. I mean, like, you, you mean there's people out there that don't eat meat or don't eat glow-in-the-dark milk or whatever? Like, I, I just really didn't have a, a reference for that. And then I started to really dive into it, and I got into um, raw living food. And I saw all these miraculous healing stories of people losing upwards of like 400, 500 pounds, people healing, quote-unquote, incurable diseases. Um, and that really inspired me to um, give it a shot. So I basically just asked myself a question. I wasn't dogmatic. I wasn't going into any kind of food click culture dogma about it, which is one of the things that maybe we can talk about, the fundamentalism that that pervades the diet world and why it can be so conflicting and confusing for people just to figure out, hey, what, what do I eat? Um, for me, it was more about inspiration, an inspiration for a new possibility, because I had figured out that, you know, I'm probably going to always have this injury. I'm probably always going to be dealing with this. By the time I'm 30 years old, you know, who knows, like maybe I'll have wrecked my body on my way to, you know, pursuing this athletic um, pursuit, you know, being an Olympic champion or whatever. And so that was kind of daunting for me, but th this gave me a new kind of breath of life. So basically I asked myself a question, what would happen if I adopted a 100% um, living food diet, meaning no cooked food, no processed food, no animal foods, just fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, fermented foods, sprouts, um, and green vegetable juices and, and getting into nature. And what ended up happening within 30 days, I completely healed a seven year knee injury. It's actually two knee, two knee injuries on one on each knee, completely healed that to the point where I actually forgot that I was ever in pain. And this really, this really catalyzed something in me. This was really the start of my spiritual pursuit because, um, you know, long story short, I basically one day I found myself driving to one of these hills. It was a five mile stretch that I had always gone to, to train, but, um, you know, prior to my injury. But after that, I developed a little bit of a fear of running and I had always loved running. You know, it was cathartic for me. I, I just really, it was active meditation, but I couldn't do it because of my injury. So there's always this little bit of fear in my mind about doing that. And then I don't know what possessed me, but I almost forgot all about it. And I went and ran this entire five mile stretch. I come back down from the hill and you know, all the endorphins kick in and you're like in the zone and you're like, you're, you're totally connected. I come down from the hill and I, I, I go back into waking state consciousness and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What just happened? I'm checking my knee. I'm kind of panicking. I'm checking my knees. I'm, I'm hopping around. Like, am I, am I okay? Is everything okay? No inflammation, no sign of pain or anything. And I had the biggest wake up call of my life. I realized that not only was I not in pain anymore, but I had forgotten that I was ever in pain. 
And I realized something very important about the healing process is that healing, one of the reasons people are, are constantly healing but never healed, you know, you might hear like, oh, I'm in a healing process, I'm healing, I'm healing, I'm a cancer survivor, you know, there's kind of this identity that gets attached to it, which creates a perpetual condition, um, you know, it's actually forgetting about who we used to be. You know, that's why I love Joe Dispenza's work, because he's essentially talking about, um, you know, breaking the habit of being who you've used, who you've been accustomed to being. And I had been accustomed to becoming somebody that had a knee injury, somebody that couldn't train completely, somebody that didn't have full mobility or full utility of my physical body. And once that identity was dissolved just through adopting a completely different lifestyle um, and getting back into nature, getting barefoot on the electrical surface of the ground, getting my feet barefoot and moving up up hills and, and exercising different muscles in my feet, because essentially my feet had always been in the the, the um cast called a shoe. So I, I really lost a connection with nature, but then I reconnected and that completely transformed my life. But, but the thing about it was, um, you know, because I, I figured like, okay, amazing. I can go back to my athletic pursuit, but something interesting happened to me where my, my, my Dharma, if you will, my life, my, my true life path opened up because I had a consciousness change. And this is the biggest message that I try to impart to people about the nature of, um, I don't like the word diet because it has the word die in it. And, and so people are on this kind of yo-yo diet, but they're never really living it. And so I like the word live it. And that, and that's essentially what happened to me when I got into living food, I had more life force circulating. I had more of an electrical current moving through my body and it did something to my psychology. It changed the way that I was looking out on the world. I started to notice that, you know, people are essentially, um, I started to really get a reality check on the level of degeneration, the level of, of mental, emotional and physical sickness that was going on in the world before then. I wasn't quite as aware of it because I was also part of it. I was also swimming in it. But all of a sudden, I got an observer kind of bird's eye view of the whole situation, and my heart completely broke open. I had a cathartic release in my heart, and this deep level of empathy started to come through, and I realized that I had an experience that wasn't just for me. This experience had to be brought to the world. I had to actually change my course from more of a self-centered focus on being an athlete to actually becoming a voice for a message. And uh, that's, that's kind of how that whole start, that journey started. That was about, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years, something like that ago. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's how I got started with it. I was going to name this interview after the name of that book, you know, the genius in everyone, because I'm, I'm convinced that uh, just as you said, there's a cycle in which people are almost fooling themselves in regards to the time it takes to make a change in life. You spoke of it in health terms about being caught in a cycle of dis-ease. And just because they're rephrasing the disease as I'm curing myself from it, you're still within it. Uh, it's still taking priority, not the, the wellness, right? I often say that people can't get to their vocation until they actually include the body. I mean, can you imagine we're even talking about this in the 21st century? And yet we are, right? right. Until the body is actually involved in that process, you do not have the octane. Nothing like it you know, uh, to, to attain your calling, as people would call it. I call it vocation, but, you know, every, everyone listening to us knows, hey, what's my calling? What's my dharma? Well, you can ask that question until you're blue in the face. A serious uh, 
attempt to awaken it. I mean, really serious. When you're now, you know, all the, all the uh, prevarication is ended, it will include the body. If you you just cannot fly, you know, in other sense. And and another way of phrasing it is like Walter Russell's uh, cover of the book: "The genius in everyone." It's it's vocational, and you are here for a purpose, for goodness' sake. But see, no outside force can tell you that. What you're talking about is when that voice awakened from within yourself, and then a road opened up. Not totally w- with your will. I mean, it's you know your will connected to it, and then got, you know moves you along. But the thing happened numinously, almost you know like a calling. Uh, that set you on that path. And it's the same for everyone. And it's more, it's more needed now than at ever, at any time. No matter what kind of situation we find ourselves in, no matter what Big Brother does, there's one eternal ontological fact. Man has a calling. Every single person on this planet has a calling. And they can either uh, alert to it, you know, uh, take it seriously, ask that question, or they can remain, uh, hiding away from it. And then, then the Big Brother control immediately enters in as that paternal sort of a guide then he says you know I, I don't have any meaning or calling from within hey big brother hey teacher hey guru you know fuck any anything and anyone that can now come and inspire me from the outside my message from day one is, is to try and show people even on the most basic level you know that that's not good that's that's a form of ensla- enslavement really you know but that walter russell book yeah i put a link below to that i'm glad you brought that up yeah i, that quote, I really sorry go ahead uh, I, I was just gonna, I was just gonna piggyback on that for a moment. I, I really feel like my work in the world has, you know, although the hallmark and the, the, the kind of the vehicle of it is health and nutrition and regeneration, all those great topics of longevity and things of that nature. I really feel like what my work is actually about is helping people find their life purpose and get more clarity and direction in their life and, and really tune into their dharma and get off the samsara karmic wheel that's constantly repeating. And that has a lot to do with what we put in our mouth because where is that food coming from? Is it coming from factory farms? Is it coming from dairy farms or battery chicken cages? Is it coming from environmentally destructive, genetically modified sources that are, that are depleting the natural resources of our planet? Like that, that all has a karmic imprint, doesn't it? And it affects our consciousness. And, um, this is something I had to wake up to over, over the years. And what I found in that process of helping people kind of like localize on what their dharma is and have the confidence and have the courage to actually embody it had a lot to do with what we put in our mouth. And that's one of the biggest programs going. And that's how we do become, even even though people in the spiritual world are very focused on like, you know, sovereignty, I hear this word, word all the time, or, or going against the system, rebelling against the system, but they're still eating ding-dongs and Snickers and hamburgers and whatever the case is, they're still deep in the system. And that's what they don't realize. It's not just an attitudinal, attitudinal shift. It's, it's an, an embodiment. You have to actually change your fuel source because there is something going on between your consciousness and your psychology and the food that you put in your mouth. And there are subliminal messages that are encoded in those substances. And, and just one last thing I wanted to mention that, that came to my mind, Michael, as you were bringing this up from a, from a health perspective and a willpower perspective. You know, the, the Taoist Chinese medicine practitioners and the great herbalists, which I, which I study voraciously, um, one of the things that they talk about is willpower. And, you know, obviously it's not, it's not the will to power necessarily, but it's your own intrinsic will and how that's housed in the kidneys and the adrenals. And we see an epidemic of people that are adrenally burnt out. They have hormone issues, thyroid issues. And a lot of this is 
environmental toxicity. A lot of it is the food, but a lot of it is the, the, um, you know, it, a lot of it is actually a dis, a dislocation from their actual, their work in the world. It's a, it's a, it's an anxiousness. It's an existential angst. It's a, it's, um, essentially not, no, it's essentially burning, burning out the candle at both ends. And there is a deep connection with adrenal fatigue and willpower because the kidneys house fear and they house courage, don't they? So if we're adrenally sufficient, meaning that we have healthy kidneys, healthy adrenals, and we're balanced mentally, emotionally, and physically, and we're taking care of ourselves, then we're going to be able to produce more courage. We're not going to be so susceptible to the fear, the pathology of fear. Um, but if our adrenals are burnt out and we're just in the matrix, we're in the program, we're just going, 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 never reflecting, never contemplating, never taking a step back. And we're in that, that kind of mode of things, drinking the coffee all day long, pushing that, that dopamine button all day long. Then we actually become more susceptible to fear energetically. Um, and this, I just see this, this cycle keep going. And, and how can you find your life purpose? How can you find your Dharma? It takes tremendous courage to, to embark upon it. I remember for me to be able to step out of my, my path as a martial artist, I was running a school of over 500 students. I, I was looked up to, respected at a very young age. And for me to step out of that based on a whim, you know, other people thought I was crazy. Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, I thought I was going to be on the cover of a Wheaties box or something. Thank, you know, thank God that didn't happen now, knowing what I know now. But that, that's what I, I anticipated. And to step out on a whim, basically a, a subtle impulse to change course into a direction that I, I have no idea I'd, I'd be on the unslaved. I didn't even know what this was. I didn't know I'd be, you know, speaking to hundreds and thousands of people at, at events and working with people and have an influence on people's lives. I had no idea. All I knew was that something was changing and that fire to compete, so to speak, in my athletic pursuit was starting to dim down and a different kind of fire was starting to cultivate. Um, and I just had to trust, I, I just had to trust the process. Yeah, that's excellent. I mean, it's a, it's a great story. And I mean, there's so many, there's so many elements to this discussion. And I mean, I would say that from my experience, um, in working with people, because I do run my own martial art academy, I've run it for over 12 years now and I've been in the martial art world and in the fitness world and in the diet world. And I've heard every argument under the sun. I've spoken to tons of experts. I've read tons of books on it. And I've done experimentation with my own body as every athlete does. Um, and there's many views on diet and all these different things, but we can all agree on the fact that, uh, to think consciously about what you're doing in your daily practice from, like you said, what you put into your mouth to what kind of thoughts you're thinking. Um, I put a lot of stake into consciousness as a factor when it comes to health, a huge amount of stake, because I've heard, Stories like yours, Ronnie, and I've had my own where I, oh, I changed my diet or I started taking supplements or I started doing different types of workout routines or getting out in nature. And I've heard people from so many different paths have that same awakening experience, but from the other side, like someone might say, hey, I went purely carniv carnivorous diet and then all of a sudden my health uh, totally jump started and I've changed and I'm, I've cured this and that. And then other people are like, no, I went raw vegan and it changed it. And one guy's like, no, I went paleo or I did a balance or I did this or I did that. And so for me, the, the X factor here is 
the consciousness by which you bring to what you're doing. And, um, and then of course, obviously we have to know about what's go- what kind of processes are going into our food, whether it's our vegetables or meat product, anything like it's, you have to know the source of it, but the source of us happens to be the way we approach this building process and the way we approach our view of ourselves and the way we uh, think about all of these different things. And so many people are unconsciously doing things. They're just eating what they're, to- what they're told by the advertisements in the media to eat. They're, they're wearing what they're told to wear. They're doing what they're told to do. So this does create a slave-like mentality in people, whether they know it or not, uh, because of the fact that they're not in that process of what Walter Russell would talk about, about formulating genius. And it's funny when we think about genius and that quote, it's a, that was a, that was a life-changing quote for me too, man. I loved it. I did a whole video on it once just because it, it profoundly affected me of this idea that mediocrity is self-inflicted and genius is self-bestowed. I mean, look at the world and look at so many people around you and look at yourself, different periods of yourself in your life and go, hey, there were times when I, I became less than what I knew I could be almost in spite of myself. I remember having this experience. In spite of it, I knew that it was not my best. I knew that I was doing things to jeopardize myself. I knew deep down that I was my own worst enemy, but I kept doing it anyways. And you brought up a good word there that it's courage that changes that. Because it takes courage, not just to change your diet and change your routine and start going to the gym or whatever. It takes courage to look within yourself and look at yourself and go, hey, I have this potential waiting to be expressed. I have these desires waiting to be explored. I have these ideas I want to think about and try to express in the world. But I'm afraid to do it. And so I'm going to jeopardize myself on the way. Did you ever feel like that, Ronnie, that like on this path of you finding your your special, the, the combination of all the things that help you tick, did you find that you doubted yourself the majority of the way and then there maybe were some moments that, you know, finally things clicked for you or what was that experience like? I mean, it happens every day still. I mean, in different <laughs> yeah, degrees, ongoing. different, different. Yeah, it, it's it, what, what I found, and this is what I really appreciate about what I got from Tony Robbins' work. There's a lot of things I appreciate, but one of the things he really talked about was the power of rituals. And, you know, maintaining consistency and congruency with who we believe we are. And that's really what did it for me. You know, I have people that come to me all the time and they're like, how do I write a book? I see that you've written, you've written multiple books. How do I do that? And well, for me, it wasn't this long drawn out process. I, I bestowed the identity of an author and then I started writing. I wasn't writing to become an author. I, I wasn't trying to be a black belt in Taekwondo or a third degree black belt now in Taekwondo. I was a black belt. I was actually embarrassed to wear. I got so deep into it because my skill set was so high comparatively to the other black belts at one point in, at my school. And there's, you know, it's kind of interesting story why, why I, I received my black belt later on. Um, I was a black belt way ahead. I actually wouldn't wear my belt until the instructor came over to me. I was like, Hey, where's your belt? And I was like, uh, yeah, okay, fine. I'll put it on, you know, but because it was so deep in me. And then eventually when I got my first degree black belt, it was like this moment where everything came together because I real, it was like, I felt congruent. I felt like the Mm -hmm. outside representation was congruent with who I knew I was internally and I think that's, that's, that's really the key is the rituals that we participate in, the, the practices, the things that anchor in the congruency 
of who we know we really are, but then we get lost in the external world and the, the technology and the, the texting and the, the occupational pursuit versus the vocational pursuit, which you talk about all the time, Michael, and we get lost in that. So we essentially lose ourselves. Right. And so there's this inner conflict that sometimes comes up. And I feel like that's that in my personal life. That's the only time I doubt myself is when I'm not fully congruent, when I'm not participating or I'm not practicing what I preach. I'm not practicing what I know to be true. And, you know, why, why does that happen? I feel like we all have an inner adversarial force that is opposing our highest potential. That's why it does take courage, doesn't it? That's why, you know, the food thing, for example, it's not the, it's not the diet adjustment or the lifestyle or even the entre, if someone's an entrepreneur, it's not the, it's not the new habits or practices that, that are courageous in of themselves. It's the willingness to consistently do the things that we're afraid to do. Um, you know, it's not the things in of themselves, but it does take a lot of courage to change yourself. Right. And I think that's really that's really the point that I try to drive when it comes to like changing your nutrition strategy, changing your health, changing your your fitness routine, changing whatever it is, because these patterns get so built in and the neuro pathways get so laid out in the brain and in, in you know, the psychological um, connection. They get so laid out inside of us that when we start changing our behavior, the world around us starts changing most most pronounced in the people in our life. Right. And, and the assumptions and the, the judgments and the expectations that the people closest to us have of us because they're accustomed to who we've been to them. And once we start changing, it shines a light on those people that we're comfortable with who we are. Maybe they were comfortable with mediocrity. It doesn't mean that our, our parents or our brother or sister or our cousins or friends, it doesn't mean that they want less for us. It just means that they're uncomfortable with our own growth because then it forces them to actually have to either grow or, you know, or, or go to the wayside. And I feel like that, that, that's been my biggest thing. I, I don't really deal with that anymore. You know, I've, I've kind of moved through all that. Um, but in the beginning, that was one of the most challenging things. I'd hear from my mom. I'd hear from my stepfather, you know, you're eating this rabbit of food. What are you doing? Like, it's like, but I just stuck with it because luckily for me, I, I knew that the voice on the inside was more important than the voices on the outside. And it was actually seeking a level of peace because this voice, you know, like you mentioned, like answering the call, it's like that call would not stop ringing that mm. I would not stop getting that knock on the door. And every time I tried to sedate myself, every time I tried to ignore it, it would only get louder and it only create more restlessness inside of me. So from a self-preservation perspective, I had to start listening to the call. One day I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to answer this thing. I'm just going to hear what the other voice on the other end has to say. And once I did, I became liberated. I became liberated from the straitjackets of mediocrity and all these, all these, um, incongruent patterns that I picked up from society trying to fit into the mold of society and, and what I thought that I had to be versus who I know I truly am. And once I decided that I was going to walk the authentic path and I was going to go wherever it took me, um, that's when I started to find a level of peace. And it's those rituals for me every single day because that adversarial force 
is still there. That that dark force, whatever whatever we want to call it, it's still there, and it's 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 part of the human condition. It's part of the noosphere of of the the psychic soup of of the collective, and we're all being affected by it. And that's why I, I'm really passionate about the food message because I, in my experience, I haven't seen anything create as much of a transformation for people than than food does that mean food is the end all be all no of course not but it's the easiest access point one green vegetable juice yeah yeah to alkalize the body there's yeah i I just wanted the intention exactly yeah yeah exactly you can't yeah exactly like you know you mentioned um david you mentioned kind of like the the um i guess the conflicts or the different varying experiences people have on different dietary systems for me the reason i'm so passionate about vegetarianism and living foods isn't because i'm dogmatic i'm actually very i'm very much a scientist i'm a philosopher i think there's a necessary integration between philosophy and science i think science or mechanism mechanistic thinking by itself creates chaos i think philosophy without science is creates more fa- fantastical theories that may not be practical in real application or haven't been proven so there has to be some kind of balance between the two right the right and left hemispheres of the brain um does this produce results essentially and that was the question i asked myself what would happen if i did this and i don't know why living foods why why didn't paleo why wasn't paleo the thing for me why wasn't the carnivore diet the thing for me as an athlete that seems pretty logical but for whatever reason i stumbled upon raw living foods. I stumbled upon Ann Wigmore's information on, on wheatgrass fasting and water fasting and, and even getting into like some of the Hindu perspectives on breatharianism and the esoteric side of nutrition. That was my journey. That's my dharma. But I also know that it's not up to me to impose my preferences or beliefs onto other people because everybody has a different dharmic path. And I feel like the, the nutrition part of it is it's part of a destiny. It's part of an authentic path, and, and we all have a different path to walk. So my message is really about helping people find what's going to work for them. Um, can we all benefit from eating more vegetarian food? Absolutely. Does that mean you have to be a vegetarian, you have to be a vegan, or you have to do this? No, absolutely not, because as you just said, Michael, that would, that would be without proper intention. That would be my intention, which is not what's important for other people. All I can do is share relevant information grounded in scientific research it's practical there is some kind of philosophical point to what i'm trying to say but ultimately each person has to experiment and find out what's going to work best for them and it's going to support their their pursuit of finding more meaning in life i appreciate you said that and it's important people think about that and that there's a difference between saying hey here's the research i have and the experience i have with this diet or this philosophy and then the other thing to say, well, now I want to impose this on all society because I believe that this is the best solution. And therefore, um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go out and knock people over the head until they finally do it the way I think they should be doing it. I think the world is full of this. I think that the reason we see so many contradictions, uh, there's many factors in diet specifically why I think there's contradictions in it. But um, ultimately, it comes back to something very important we've been talking about here is that consciousness factor is that, you know, Everybody has to have the sovereignty to go on their journey to make these discoveries that you have made and that I've made. Everybody's made for themselves. Like one of the things I researched when it came to diet that really helped me personally was looking into blood type, looking into body type, 
genetic history, lineage, family line, you know, race, all these kinds of things have impacted the way that I personally choose to eat. And I've played with all these different experiments to find out the differences. And that's why I think that's one reason I think we see so many widespread uh, differences in like also depending on the type of thing you're trying to cure in your body or the type of cleanse that you need to do in order to address certain issues will determine how you're going to move through your diet. Um, I work a lot too with, uh, you know, some of the, the native, the local native tribes here in Canada. I've spoken many times to them and just kind of going, Hey, what's the historical record, you know, going back in the, the different practices and the things that you do with your diet and how you eat. And, um, they follow very closely to what the bears eat and what the, the ant, like there's a certain uh, respect they have for nature that they follow that trend in nature, but that they also believe that seasonal eating seasonally and eating locally and understanding like, if you're in this hemisphere of the planet, there's this type of plant life, animal life, et cetera, and there's different seasons, and therefore your your body is a product of that, your 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 lineage is a product of that, so she did according to that. But in no way have I gotten from the people I work with, and I'm not getting this from you either, Ronnie, where there's this feeling of, well, now you should go do it like that. There's recommendations. There's here's the science. Here, I've written a book on it. Here's all the experts. Try it. And that's what I appreciate in, in this field is that you have this open-minded approach that says you have to discover what's right for you. Isn't that the whole point of this philosophical Dharma journey anyways, is to try to go on that path. And what I always get upset with, with some of these, and they're in all the diets, all the diets are guilty of this. I've seen it everywhere where there's this thing that's like, well, this is what we, this is what we're going to prescribe for the world to fix all the world's problems. And um, now we're going to go out and be combative about it. And we're going to go out and try to get government to legislate things that are going to force people along this path. Like, for example, UN Agenda 21, you got nothing but veganism running through that entire thing because of the fact that they're, they have a particular view of how to control resources. So they might fly yeah. the banner of, hey, we're all trying to eat healthy and save the animals and, and the planet. But at the same time, they're like, yeah, but we also want to control everything and make sure that we yeah. tell you what you should eat and what you should do. So, I mean, getting ruled with a stick... We saw this in religion. I'm sure there's brilliant ideas in many people's religion. But if you're an authoritarian religion and you're like, nope, this is the view of the world, then it becomes toxic. Michael's doing a whole presentation on idealism versus materialism. If they're going to say in materialist circle, hey, materialism is the only way and logical, rational reasoning and scientific left brain thinking is the only way to save the world. And they're going to impose that everywhere and kill anybody off that's going to say otherwise. That doesn't work out. So I think what we're always talking back is that return to balance and the return to the self and saying, I need to follow my inner voice in the way that you were saying, Ronnie, which was beautiful. I've had many experiences as well. And Michael, I'm sure you too, where there's this feeling of, I can't ignore this thing. I don't know what it is. So I have to seek it out. And then it reveals itself. And it's just like doors start opening up. Things start changing. Health comes your way. Uh, at, you know, Success comes your way. And it's just, and even sometimes challenges, sometimes opening that door brings nothing but more challenges, you know? <laughs> it definitely brought more challenges to me. I like what you said about, uh, you know, respecting science, because sometimes in, in, in our work, for other reasons, we have to really bash science. What we're really doing is bashing scientism and materialism, but exactly. some people can get confused. Right. I am not by any means an opponent of science. It's that the people who are misusing scientists, wearing the badge that they're scientists from the materialistic school, are not scientists. They are not doing the real science work, which is to remain open-minded and non-dogmatic. So it's not science itself as a method of discovery that anybody is against here. 
that needs to be underlined. It's the kind of people who, be, who by becoming scientists, but then purveying this utterly reductive, deterministic, anti-freedom, anti-free will doctrine, they are posing as scientists, and very, very quickly people start thinking that they represent the study of science or technology. You know, and that is absolutely fraudulent. Right now, technology is the best thing for getting any of the answers out, like we, what we're participating in. That's technology, isn't it? It's, we couldn't be doing it without that. So how can you critique technology? It, it sort of, you know, doesn't doesn't work. Uh, so there's uh, there's something to be said about that as well. Uh, and technology also, when used correctly, unites, like you're saying, the native traditions, the Eastern traditions and the Western, and, and brings out things that are extremely... I mean, who would ever have heard of Walter Russell today, except for people like ourselves mentioning him and, you know, people right. like Matt Presti and others there, using the technologies to do so. It, it's very, very important. Um, and wasn't he a I scientist? For me, That's what's funny is that he was actually a scientist. Of, he was yeah, a scientist of, of all consciousness scientists. of of all. And and yet they're like, no, he's a pseudoscientist. Like, go far. Come on. Well, yeah. how can, yeah, but then see, I mean, that is so spurious. And, and that character assassination and ad hominem attack is one of the methodologies of these people. They're right. not generous uh, even with people within their own movement. See, you don't need to go to a Walter Russell within their own movement. They will pillory and they will try, you know, try to carry assassin a doc, uh, a, a, a Sheldrake, a Charles T. Tart. You know, they will try to even people that once were in inner school, but who dissented, you know, and there's a whole list of these people like, you know, Alfred North Whitehead and things like that. But when you spoke earlier about veganism, I had to laugh because I had never heard of it either. And I became a vegan the moment I heard about it. Basically, within the same day, a mentor, and one thing I must say about my mentors back in the 80s is all of them were like yoga masters, man. They were in fucking excellent shape. You know, they were like Bruce Lee's living in your life. Uh, and so that was a huge, you know, because um, that is inspiring to a young man. There's no question about that. You know, and I grew up on, you know, like, you know, martial arts films, you know, like the Water Margin, which they used to show here in Britain, and the Bruce Lee stuff, the Enter the Dragon, just like you say. And so when I seen people, you know, coming in who were spiritual masters of us, but these guys could do yoga, like, you know, the whole standing on your head bit. They were, like, beefed out and really strong and in, into these traditions, you know, could do these athletic things. That was also very inspiring. And, and one of those men mentors, I was bringing in a bunch of shopping and uh, it must have been about um, 15. It was 1981 or something like that. And I was frying up these burgers. You know, blood was just pouring out of it. And I'm happily going along, you know. And this guy just came over, leaned over, you know, stood at the fridge, leaning on it, just looking at this diet that I was, I was on, right? And he again, he didn't enforce anything. Right? He just said, you don't need that. And I, I never liked eating meat anyway, but it was forced to eat it from family, right? And I just looked at the stuff and I went, you know, yeah, probably you're right. And that was the last time I ever tasted meat. And it was 1981 or something. And it's just, he didn't espouse any dogma. He didn't, you know, sit down. He didn't sit me down and make a big thing. And he just goes, I don't think you need that kind of food. It's not good for your body, you know? And he was right because that's poison shit you're buying from the Safeway or wherever it was at the time, you know? And so then, uh, but, but see, it was really, it was kind of a hero worship, which I think is a good thing. And you just need to look at this guy's shape, you know, his, his his fitness. You take out anybody. And not only that, but a sort of aura around this person also, you, you know, I must have noticed. And that's the kind of person I wanted to look up to, the person I wanted to be, you know. And, and, and it affirmed for me uh, to to take to, to drop that from my diet. And then it took, you know, many, many years of actually serious uh, fighting with family members to maintain that. It was not an easy process to, you know, maintain this sense of, so you need the will. You, you, the will comes in at that point where 
yeah, there's a bit of will where you need to maintain what you're doing after you make a start, but there's also the will often to fight the world, you know, at that point. And by God, you know, we really, really did have to do so. Uh, there's one other thing you mentioned subliminals. We should probably talk about that, but there's one other thing when you talked about base energy is I'd correct me if I'm wrong. Probably both of you know the answer to this in the Eastern tradition. There's two kinds of chi. There's the inherited chi, which is your base chi, which they claim, you know, is there for good. And then there's a sort of a, I don't know really what to call it, the mercurial chi, where you, you get that back from working out just just on the daily basis, and that comes and goes. So there's moments of trough, there's moments of will, but then there's this underlying chi that sort of stays there forever. But now what I think, let me get your comment on this. There's some kind, there, there may be some types of person, especially traumatized people, where that chi, from, and these are just the very, very cursory studies I've done, I've not done anything deep, so I'll just throw this out there. Could there not be people who find themselves overweight or find themselves exhausted from the world and just not able to get their will together? Could that inherited chi in some way have been drained by, by traumatic events and they don't even have it? And, and then maximize that to the world where there is a constant pulling of the rug in ways we all know. We've discussed this a million times, the news stories, the horror stories, the rumors of wars, uh, and all the other threats about bird flus and poison food and three-headed monsters at the door and all the meltdown things that they use to keep us in trauma, could that not be affecting the what we what the Eastern people call the inherited chi? And therefore, people, when they want to make these changes in their lifestyle, are unable to do it. What's your take on that? Maybe first start with. Yeah, no, that that's that's brilliant. Um, in Chinese medicine, they basically call that a shen disturbance. So in Chinese um, Taoist, particularly not TCM traditional Chinese medicine, that's more of an allopathic adaptation to the original Taoist herbal arts. Um, and what the ancient Taoist masters were, were really onto. And so they have something called the three treasures, which is your, your Jing, your Qi, and your Shen. And your Qi is like your animating energy. It's what animates the human body. It's your blood flow. It's your circulation. It's the electrical energy flowing through the nervous system. Um, and then your Jing is like your primordial energy. It's like the, the deep storage of primordial energy that you essentially inherit when you're born. So it's How do you spell that? Um, Jing What's is J, 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 I, N, G. Yeah. These are the three treasures, right? They're talking about. Yeah. The, the three, the three treasures. And there's, there's a fourth treasure, which, which we've already touched on. But so, so, you know, it's like, there's, there's a number of different factors, but then ultimately what all the great masters were teaching beyond the, the more, the physical side of things was the Shen and the Shen is the spirit. So if you think of like a candle, for example, as a representation of the human body, you have the, you have the wax, which is the Jing. So that's like, that's really, that's your, that's not, not so much your life force, but that's your genetic potential. And so when people are burning out and just like going, going, going and doing drugs and doing all these different things and appropriate eating, stress patterns, trauma, unresolved trauma, that eventually burns out the candle over time. And then eventually somebody's 30, 40, 50 years old. They've been on, you know, standard American diet. Everything seems fine until one day the last straw that broke the camel's back happens. And I've seen this so many times where somebody's been on pharmaceutical medications and um, nothing really seemed to be, um, you know, breaking them down. They didn't seem to show any overt symptoms of falling apart. But then one day, everything tanked. And within a month, they, they look like they aged 10 or 20 years. And then all of a sudden, that person, you know, that person dies on the deathbed. You know, it happens all the time. And essentially, that, that genetic material is completely run out. 
And, um, and the Shen is, or let me, uh, the Qi is the, is the, the flame. So the flame is the fire. That's your, that's your animating energy. That's your, that's like how you, you, you know, you express your, yourself in the world. And then the illuminescent kind of, um, you know, like the, there's like a purple undertone or overtone on the top of the flame. That's the spirit. So that's the Shen. And the Shen is essentially somebody's ability to express their spirit, their enthusiasm, their charisma, their joy, their passion, their love for life. And so when they when somebody has a Shen disturbance, they're essentially, um, there's a lot of different ways you, you could think about that from like different ideas of like, you know, psychic possession or psychic hijacking or programming or things of that nature. But essentially they're, they're blocked from their heart. They can't actually access their heart energy. And so there's a blockage there. And absolutely, when people have unresolved trauma, they have um, psychological complications. You know, this is the, the, our entire culture is based on this. It's based on sedation, medication, tranquilizing your discomfort, tranquilizing your pain, um, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, because essentially your Shen is also has to do with your serotonin production. And so when people have road rage, they're impatient, they're, they're volatile, they've depleted their serotonin, their dopamine has been depleted, so their adrenal energy is run out. And the fourth treasure is actually, they call it your will. It's your willpower. And we, we had mentioned that earlier about the connection between your adrenals and your will. So when somebody has basically burnt themselves out, um, they don't have the will to, to live. And so they start adopting subtle death habits. And this is, and this again is like a deeper thing about what, what's infecting the, the, the program of the culture. It's a death culture. You know, every single thing is leading to that train that's going off a cliff. And so my, my, you know, my message, um, really to the world and, and bringing all this in is that we need to start, we need to start cultivating that life force. We need to start cultivating that desire to live. And that's really what, what that, that principle is about in Chinese medicine. That's how you amplify your Shen is in, you know, it's cause you actually want to be here. Well, it's like, it's like, remember that great interview with Aaron Russo and which he was speaking as a voice for the Rothschilds and the Rockefeller agenda in which he says, they're going to tear you shred to shred. They're going to split the family up. They're going to do this to the genders, which they're all doing. Yeah, you know, I mean, they call us, they call us a lost generation or the, this millennial generation lost. Yeah, they're the ones that are lost. You know, they used to call about the Teddy Boys in the '60s and the Rockers and they, and all the New Wave. They weren't half as lost because at least they knew if they were male or bloody female. Now you got Z and X and God knows what. But you're quite right, as Rousseau said. There's an attack on us, and now you see bioenergetically, you can contextualize it as well. Hamrak did as an attack on the Shen. They don't mind if you're burning up your candle. They don't mind if you're burning up the chi because basically you're building the bridges that serve them anyway. You're you know an obedient worker, right? And they give you all the, you know, the recreational things that you kind of deserve monkey, you know, hey, come on monkey, play with the toys, you know, and all that distraction. But at the same time, there's, there's, they're feeding off your, your shen, as you call it. And by the way, that, I don't know if you know this, that turns out to be an Egyptian word as well, representing the soul. The shen is a very, very high spiritual center in Egypt. They use the same word. So that's interesting, but that is a fantastic uh, uh, anatomy diagnosis of how they're vampirizing us and of course through the subliminals then if we plug that element in maybe I want to get david's quote comment though on that thing we've just been talking about but let's let's also maybe think about that that sub, by subliminal seduction and all that that implies it's actually much deeper and more worrisome than people even know 
that could be one of these parasitical ways in which there is, you know, because again, most of the, most of the symbolism we're using is highly spiritual. This is a paradoxical thing. And we've been questioning through my career why that is. Well, maybe this could answer that as well. But, but maybe David could say a few words on, on, on this whole concept of the chi and the, and the shen. Yeah. Well, all I, I, you, you both brilliantly summed it up and we'll put some links because I've got some good articles that people can read. I'm sure Ronnie, you've got some great references on it because this is really important to understand. And what I can comment on is basically what I see on the martial art mats when I'm dealing with people and I bring people in from the street that have never trained before, have never thought they, they come with that virtue that says, I, I, I got to do something with my health. I, I, I'm overweight or I'm lazy or I don't have enough energy and they've got enough sense to say, I need to start moving my body. So I always take people where they're at and I bring them in and I say, all right, welcome. Let's get started. And here's some basic exercises and here's some basic recommendations. And I don't impose uh, dietary recommendations or anything on people. I, I sort of take it based on their questioning to me. And then I just make recommendations and I reference the experts and that's what I do. But um, when it comes to this attack on the Shen, uh, if we look at this from a big perspective, like Michael's talking about, I see this, I see that this has increased in my observation, in working in multiple facilities, dojos, studios um, across Canada here, and I've even visited other places around the world, and I've seen a total change, especially since the advent of the phone, the iPhones. I've seen a total change in attention span and in the ability to understand basic concepts. I've also noticed a massive shift in coordination function. And if you think about this, coordination function in a human being is one of the most basic uh, day one things that you develop. Like if I watch, if I think back to how my daughters grew and have developed to this point, um, one is three, one is six. And I think, wow, like automatically, yeah, I've done things to help put obstacles in front of them and I wrestle with them and I get them doing stuff and doing jujitsu and dance and things like this. But automatically there's this just ability to like stop yourself from falling or, or, you know, like you kind of start developing that when I see adults coming in that don't even have that basic awareness that my six-year-old has, I realize where we're at and it, it hits me in the face every single time. And I have so, nothing but empathy. I'm just like, I want to save this, person. I want to help this person. But it always strikes me at just the level of lack of consciousness of anybody's action. People are, they're not even drugged. Like they're not like taking drugs. Well, you could talk about the foods and everything, but they're not like they see, they operate like a person who is on drugs, right? You know what I'm saying? And of course, people are probably on a lot of these SSRIs, antidepressant medications and who God knows what else, Coca-Cola. But you just, you know, you, you sit there and you watch it happen. And for us to sit here and talk about it and everybody's listening, oh, yeah, I can understand that. But to watch it and experience it and have to plow through that every single day in my job and work with people for years and years and years to help deprogram them. Um, it's, it's shocking. So the, this global agenda of keeping everybody in a servile state, in a malleable state is, I mean, just understanding this principle of Shen and energy and Chi and how it works. And you go back to the historical uh, concepts of this and seeing mm. where we're at now, people falling into fountains in the mall because they're all walking and texting the amount of accidents yeah. that happen because yeah. people are freaking not paying attention to the road and just inebriated out of their minds. And then I go to a, I talk to the average person now and they're just, they're half tanked all the time and you're just sitting there going, wow, like, okay, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of loosening up sometimes and letting things, but my God, we're living in a mirage and you're being attacked. They're going to have to have signs. Yeah. Don't fall in the fountain. 
Right, but then we won't even read that. Like we do have signs. Yeah. What's that old song? Sign, yeah. sign, people, everywhere people, a sign. People would be looking down the whole time. They won't even see it. Right. So, you know, and then you look at shows like this, you know, shows about philosophy and, and selfhood and health and all of that. And yeah, it can get popular, but it'll never be as popular as some kid's YouTube channel that is eating snot out of his nose or running around banging his head on the wall or like, you know, and that's just an interesting thing. So we know that there's this, this toxicity that's in our culture. It's systemic in our culture. Our job on the same time, has been to find out why. What is What was it that caused that uprooting? Right. Go ahead, Mike. But at the same time, never forget the, the, you know, the, the sort of premise that they showed with Frank Herbert's Dune. Take 50, they train a hundred. Take a hundred listening to us, they train a thousand, you know. Oh, yeah. There is absolutely. still a glimmer of hope and then 10,000 and so on. So, you know, it's, it's, it is, it looks uphill from one perspective, but at the same time, you know, you can't keep the truth down forever. Can we take a short break and then we'll come back and I've got a question on the positive side. This was on the negative side. Sure. Let's look at disease from the positive side. Me and the, Ronnie asked, we dealt with this, but there's something I wanted to add, you know, from when, when you and I spoke, Ronnie. So let, let's, uh, do you guys want to stay on or take a short break or how, how do you I'll stay on. This? I'll stay on. It's up to you, Ronnie. What right. you want to do? Yeah. yeah Cause I'm you have an here. announcement to make right as well. Yeah. yeah okay. Absolutely. Stay there. I'll be back in two minutes then. Okay. Great. Good. Yeah. Actually, speaking of announcement, uh, just saying hello to our members here. We got a good chat going. You have Caleb, Porcelina, uh, Landon's here, one shoe. Everybody's got a good uh, thing going uh if there's any questions throw them in the chat we can chat with ronnie here uh but basically i wanted to let everybody know that our colleague ralph ellis has just launched his new youtube and patreon channel he's going to be doing i I helped him set it up and he's going to be releasing regular episodes on the subjects that he's interested in uh so it will dovetail very nicely with the unslaved podcast so if you go on YouTube and just look up Ralph Ellis or you go on his Facebook page, he's been making some announcements there. Um, we'll put some links throughout the site so you can check it out. But go support him. I just want to encourage everybody to continue to support uh, people like Ronnie, people like Ralph, people like Michael, uh, and anybody else that you feel is really doing a good job of putting out their work and their passion, uh, supporting alternative media, supporting uh, revisionist history. That's what Ralph has been focusing on is revising uh, what he feels are Many things we've been lied about in terms of history. Uh, so definitely wanted to recommend that you go and look at that. And I'm very excited for what he's built because uh, he's got uh, some fascinating information to share. He even comments on the climate change debate and he shows all the science and kind of comes at it from his own perspective. So definitely a valuable resource to go ahead and check out. But uh, Ronnie, did you have any uh, comments or anything you want to throw at people while we're waiting for Michael? I have so many comments. There's so many things that were popping up in my mind. You know, the word scientism got brought up. We definitely can't get away from this conversation without that somehow getting re-injected. Definitely have a whole thing on that, um, whole perspective on that. Um, there's so many, so many great things that, that have been talked about here. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention too that you really brought up, David, was this whole, this whole idea around fundamentalism, zealotry, dogma. Why does that exist? What, what's that all about? Well, when I first got into the diet world, the first thing that became obvious to me is that there were a lot of conflicting opinions, perspectives, and I actually didn't understand it. I didn't jump into any of these camps just because I was like, I was doing the vegan raw food thing. I wasn't raising a banner necessarily. I thought about it. I tried that whole approach at first, but then I realized, you know what, that's not really, I'm not here to be a crusader for this message. This, this vehicle is, is a, it's a vehicle. 
right? Mm-hmm. It's not the it's not the entire message in of itself. And I'm not trying to conform people to do what I want to do because I'm just I'm just figuring it out. I don't. What do I know? Right. And so I realized that when I studied, you know, I started going deeper into like the nature of good and evil, archetypical phenomenons um, and really looking at dogma from a psychological perspective. One of the things I realized about it is that um, why people get into these dogmatic fundamentalist groups, whether it's veganism, it's paleolithic perspectives, it's the keto diet, it's the 80-10-10, like low fat, low protein, high fruit, fruitarianism, whatever, whatever the thing is. Well, typically somebody, an individual has a profound experience. Let's say they do a raw vegan diet and they have a healing experience. So in that person's mind, it makes a lot of sense that this would be the thing that Mm -hmm. everybody needs because they had a healing experience, right? So immediately that person kind of like, um, they, they capture that idea without going further beyond it. And they, they specialize, they localize into that idea of being the end all be all. And they create a box around it. And then they want to get as many people into the box because essentially that person doesn't fully know, maybe they've had an experience or they have a philosophical preference, you know, somebody that's driven by world peace, or they want to see they want to see those kind of qualities in the world and they associate the diet as being the way to do that animal welfare and everything like that. Um, and the, the atrocities of factory farming. So obviously that, and that person most likely has a lot of trauma that they've dealt with. So they can actually relate to the animals in the factory farm because, you know, it's like that they actually understand that. And so from that perspective, um, what I've seen is that people, they'll actually try to rally as many other people around them to create a cult or to create a culture that confirms their own bias. Mm-hmm. So because that person may not have the, the inner fortitude, the inner confidence, the inner strength to stand on their own. It's one thing to stand on your own and to truly believe in what you're doing, like Martin Luther King Jr., for example. What an incredible testament to the human spirit he was. One of the great quotes that I recently mentioned that he said is that evil persists when good people do nothing. And, you know, so, so there's a, so there's a, there's an authentic drive or an authentic inspiration, I think, that comes through people that do become a little more fundamental, um, fundamentalist. But, but ultimately, the problem with it is that these people are, are not willing to stand on their own authentically and to allow everybody else to generate their own authentic thoughts and their own authentic opinions. So they try to rally everyone around them. It doesn't matter what camp it is. This isn't a diet problem. When I first got into this, I thought this was an issue with the diet. Like, mm-hmm. oh, the diet's deficient in minerals or something. So they're, they're neurologically out of balance, which is potentially true but it's a psychological human condition issue because people it's just another religious um iteration just just adopting the diet or adopting the fitness program the crossfit program or whatever adopting scientism which is an atheistic religion that's hijacking the scientific method you see it in martial arts you're a martial artist i mean i know there's two major competing brands of taekwondo and then there's a bunch of other variations of it but you have uh, and then, uh, you know, in jujitsu and kickboxing, karate, and then my, so it's like either my style is better than your style. My God is better than your God. My political philosophy is better than yours. My, and so instead of, and, and maybe everybody's got points. I mean, I would say if I'm going to tell somebody, if you want to learn how to kick and focus on becoming really good with your legs, 
then you Taekwondo, like it's the best in the world. You have to, this is like the, they're the experts at that. Like that's the speed, the fluidity, the beauty of the art. I have so much respect for Taekwondo. I wish I could do a 360 roundhouse kick. Um, you know, but then if you want to learn hand speed and you want to understand what your hands can do and what your arms can do, then you need to do boxing and Kung Fu and all that. And then if you want to understand, uh, how to redirect energy, then you're going to get into Aikido and Judo and Jiu Jitsu and Tai Chi. So like, it, it's what happens is we tend to negate all of the perspectives when we hold a perspective and I've done it. We've all done it. We're all guilty of it. It's like, it's one of those blind spots of the human mind. And it, it all comes from fear, I think. And sometimes it comes from a virtuous place. I believe too, like in all these dietary places and all everybody's sitting there going, I want to help the world. I want to help all the suffering in the world. I want to see a better place. I want to help people with their health. So it comes from a virtue. But isn't it true, though? And Michael, I'm sure you've seen this even just working in the alternative research community and you grew up in the spiritual communities and things like that, where it's like, you know, it comes from a virtuous place. But then you see people go bad and you see people starting to shift from that original virtue to trying to create this sort of matrix around it. And like it, it becomes overly it, it becomes an extreme. It becomes extremist, you know. And then it becomes exclusionary. And then it, it's like that movie Fight Club encapsulated this, encapsulated this perfectly where it's like, okay, he's making some really good points. You know, I'm working the corporate job. I'm not happy. I'm just trying to buy things to make myself happy. And, and then, you know, this Brad Pitt character comes along and starts telling him, Hey, fuck Martha Stewart. Screw everything. Screw the man. You know, forget your yin yang table and your Ikea shit. Come out here and let's go drink. Let's go fight. You know, get back to primal instincts. And you're like, yeah, that's good. This guy needed some martial arts and some fighting to show him who he really was. And then it start, it turns into this cult and then they start recruiting people and they start burning up the freaking city. And then it becomes, and they blow up the whole thing. And then it's like, it, that, that story, it, it encapsulates what I see of this cult like mentality that pervades everywhere. And if it pervades everywhere, it's not because of the diets, it's not because of the martial arts, it's not because of the religions or whatever. It's because there's something in the human mind that uh, can happen when, when the human mind gets weakened uh, to that point where you need other people. It's the collectivistic mindset. I need to build an army now. I need to convert the world. Wasn't that what Mao Zedong wanted to do and Adolf Hitler and all the other bastards, the tutors or whatever, the popes? This is the same thing. It maybe started from a place of I want to help. And it went down the path of evil. And then, Michael, enter your work on the origins of evil, you know? Well, the more the light intensifies in a person's life, the more the darkness is there. The devil's at the door. The more challenges that the average see, realize that the vast majority of the mediocrities are safe in their mediocrity. They never confront the devil. The sage, he walks beside the devil. Right, right, right. Right? The, so so they're, they're, they're hiding in the light. Uh, you know, Ronnie and I talked about this as well, and we've said it before in so many other ways, but you're quite right. There's a, and also don't forget that on the other side, the establishment has hidden the truth for us. We're always seeking for, so Fight Club's a good example because he handed back a false masculinity to a guy who was totally feminized. And you'll mm. even accept that rotten, rotten version of, you know, fight. Now it becomes the masculine in the most obscene type, but he'll accept that, you, you know, because our society's been feminized. Mm. So when he's talking about the Martha Stewart world and the comforts of, you, you know, all that he had known, that, that is just pacification for serving the beast. And there is some part of us that rebels against that, either through insomnia or physical sickness. See, that's what I believe. Phys physical sickness is the rebellion of your spirit against yourself. Mm. <laughs> Let's get into that later on, right? Oh, but, but then you do seek, you do seek another light, but then that can be the false light coming in. It can be, you know, cause the archetypes have been stolen from us and we're constantly in search for those archetypes. So every beautiful woman that comes, you fucking fall on your knees. 
She's mm-hmm. a fucking goddess. She should be a fucking empty vampire. Right. And, and a girl, same, same way, looking for daddy. So she goes with a thug covered in tattoos, smoking crack, selling it. A desperate thug who should be, you know, executed on this on site, but she thinks he's wonderful. You know, look at, look at the, the, the banjax mentality, right? So, and no, and also then the third thing, nobody noticing that their mentality is banjaxed completely, you know, right. Completely unaware of it. But, uh, yeah, the, uh, the Aaron Rousseau thing, like I said, you know, that there's an agenda to split us up and then that will definitely take an inner turning as well you know where they're going to divide you inside they're going to pollute you with the negative foods and those are drugs then the subliminals as well which is part of that whole idea to sell you back something that they've raped from your spirit in the first place but there was one question i had i don't know maybe you can uh, throw it out and it sort of comes like when you and i was in the interview i couldn't remember the name of an author who had given a theory of disease that it's actually there because we've de- devolved. We're spirit. We're not spiritually in our power, and therefore all the diseases manifest that wouldn't even manifest for a true sage, because those diseases are actually good things. They're red flags to show us that something's deeply off kilter, you know. And then when we ask these gateway questions about who am I, you know, why am I here, and where am I going, those kind of gateway questions. Uh, those are all positive and good, but there's a tendency for those questions and to lead us into sort of a, a, you know, an Apollonian world that negates the physicality. Of course, this is not true in the martial arts movement. You know, even people who grew up in the movie Kung Fu or the series, you know, the body is huge, you know, and no matter what martial arts uh, field you turn to, they're including the body. But let's think about kids, you know, who've never been exposed to that. And they have this, what they think is a spiritual awakening at some given point, 20s or 30s. And the body has not played a part, and the diet has not played a part. There's a, there's something bad there. That, that That's not going to lead too good, because we are the only species that asks a question about our creator. We're surrounded by species, objects, and entities that never ask about who created me. Something about the human brain does with, and we're unique. It was so unique, we don't even notice that, that this is a unique thing. I mean, look how ridiculous that is. We don't even notice that we're the only beings who can pose questions about a, you know, a potential creator, creative force that brought us all into being. People don't even contemplate the unbelievable mystery of that and the brilliance of that. But, the, but there's a negative in that as well. And that is when you start asking questions about the up, you stop asking questions about the below and the below being the body. So you, we are distinguished by the fact that we ask questions about what what brought us into being and what might the anatomy of spirit be. And everybody's got their own thing on that. But the downside is that we stop asking below. So the, the question, you know, for me, it, it, the balance is keep asking those ontological questions about the above, you know, uh, take you into idealism, mysticism, whatever, you know, personalism, you name it. But never forget asking those deep questions about what is a body? what's that connection all about? You know, like that. But the, but the, when we, when we had the interview, I couldn't remember the name of this book and it was by Robert Becker. Actually, the book was called the the body electric, which I'll put a link below. And he asked that he was the one who pointed out this fact that because we don't have psychic or spiritual immunity anymore, we, we then have the opposite, which is disease. And he's really trying to say that disease in that sense is to try to return us then. It's a natural force. Can you believe it? So rather than being something negative, and I'm bringing this up because maybe our audience, you know, can learn something from this. Change your attitude towards disease. Make it a friend. And I, and, and this can even be stretched to neurosis and mental disease. But let's, you know, let's just think of it in terms of just physical ailment, diabetes or, you know, uh, uh, 
any impairment, you know, like not, not good breathing or not good posture or, or any other malady, acne or, you know, whatever it might be. Like you mentioned posture earlier on. He is saying that in all in all, any imperfection that meets us as spiritual beings, and I think Walter Russell will be like right with us here, those diseases are good in the sense that they're, re, they're recalibrating us, you see, to, the, to the, the real inner compass of spirit. What, uh, and try to get this back to our spiritual rectitude and spiritual power. What, 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 what do you think about that, Ronnie, first, please, if, if you will? There, there's a, <clears throat> there's a number of different things that actually come up to, come up in my mind. One of them is Rudolf Steiner's perspective on what we now kind of see as scientism or, or in esotericism. The two, the two poles of the, the extremes, basically. And, um, that's, that's a very interesting thing. Rudolf Steiner obviously was one of the greatest visionaries, maybe of all time. Um, and he had some very powerful insights in wisdom that we're now living out in our world. Um, one, we'll kind of circle back around that maybe, but one of the things to, to as immediate response is that, you know, your, your body is, has detoxification pathways. It's always trying to preserve a hierarchy of priorities. So sometimes things are going to fall out of lesser priority, um, due to, due to inflammation. And what, what is inflammation? Well, inflammation is an alarm system. It's a messenger. It's a communication system in your body. And if you, if you go so far into, I guess, like, um, you, you know, trying to get out of the body, um, whether it's from a pharmaceutical side of it, it's, it's sedating it with, with any form of drugs or numbing mechanisms. In short, that's basically what all pharmaceuticals are simply put is they're, they're numbing agents. They're there to numb the signals of the body that we call symptoms. And your body is always trying to cleanse and detox itself of various forms of toxins. And if it can't, then it will redistribute those toxins into different parts of the body. It'll usually create more fat cells in the body to encapsulate those toxins to keep it out of the blood. Because when those toxins, like, for example, like heavy metals or xenoestrogens, um, hormone disrupting chemicals, like all forms of plastic and, um, uh, you know, many other different things that we find in our environment. It'll redistribute that and actually create more fat deposits to store those toxins in to protect itself because your, your lungs and your kidneys and your colon and your skin, which is the largest organ in your body that, that purges water soluble toxins out of it. Those have actually been blocked up. And so now what does the body have to do? Now it has to create these, these, um, protective mechanisms within itself. And that's why people have, you know, they start putting on the weight and it starts coming out, it starts going and starts going. Um, they have all these metabolic issues and they're chasing their tail, um, you know, with all these different ways to subdue essentially what's a communication from deep within. And I definitely feel like the spiritual perspective of this cannot go, um, unannounced. Like there, there's obviously a spiritual, um, communication system that's, that's go that's acting through the, through the body. Or maybe somebody just wants to think of it as the mind communicating to the consciousness through the body. And so we ignore that. We ignore the symptoms. We ignore the signals and we just keep going on with the same habits. And, and I feel like, you know, I feel like speaking about disease, Diseases really can be your guru. 
disease can be your teacher. I mean, if somebody has a cancer or they have a diabetes or they have an autoimmune condition or whatever the case may be, then I think it's important that they start to actually learn from it. There's a teaching there. And it's essentially trying to reroute that yeah. person back onto track, back into common sense, back into something that is going to help them free themselves. And that that's the hero's journey, right? It takes courage to actually to walk the healing path. Um, there was a, one other thing too around this that I think is really interesting when we look at like parasites, the nature, and there, there's a, there's an, there's a, an interesting metaphor with, with the parasitation, the par, the parasite consciousness of our world and internal parasites like parasite infections. And the way that parasites essentially work, you know, if you take like a cancer or you take these different, um, these different kind of, uh, dis-ease states or degenerations, it's not the cancer in of itself. It's the problem. It's the root cause. It's what manifested the conditions in the internal body for the cancer or for the parasite infection or the virus or the fungal infection, whatever it is to manifest, right? If the conditions in the body are hospitable to these infectious pathogens, then they're going to be able to, they're going to be able to thrive. If they're not, and you're more, you have an alkaline temperament, you have an alkaline internal terrain, and you've taken care of yourself and you're, you're cleaning out the tissues and all the great things that we know how to do, then those parasites are, are not going to be able to thrive and they're either going to die or they're going to move on through the stool and, and go somewhere else. So, you know, it's like, it goes deep, right? It goes really deep. But I think essentially the point that you're driving out is that, you know, we have to look deeper into what the cause and effect is going on instead of just looking at like, oh, the symptom. And then it's like the doomsday report, right? When you go to the doctor, it's, it, you know, this is a crazy thing too. I think you probably know about this. Um, so there's something called psychoneuroimmunology. It's basically the study of how the mind affects the, the body, essentially how the neuropeptides in the brain or our thoughts directly plug into our immune receptors. We actually have uh, receptors in our white blood cells of the immune system that correlate directly to our thoughts. And so when somebody, you know, they get their routine checkup, they get, they get their, their, whatever, what is it, your, 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 um, 50th year checkup at the doctor or whatever. That person didn't have any symptoms. They didn't have anything going on. They were totally fine. They go to the doctor. They get a diagnosis. That doctor tells them, Oh, uh, we just found this lump in your breasts. We just found this cyst. We just found this, this, you know, the, the start of a tumor or something. And they, they, they drug them, not physically drug them, but they, they fear inject them. This is how the whole vaccine thing, which is a whole nother subject is being propagated. Um, they basically inject them with, with dosages of fear on the spot. And what we found or what's been found statistically is that people leaving the doctor's office actually can manifest those disease symptoms extremely quickly and, and more than not, um, I don't want to say more than not, but, but oftentimes that person will actually contract that, that the symptoms of that disease that they showed no symptoms whatsoever before they walked into the doctor's office. I find that very fascinating. So there, there's, there's a very deep necessity for, um, you know, bringing in the spiritual, the psychological and emotional perspective. But, but to your point, or Michael, you know, we can't get away from the body because that, that's the problem. That's how we got into this, this situation. That's how that fear program persists is that we're disembodied 
And now these things run amok. We actually have to get solid and rooted into our body and start to, and start to, uh, you know, take care of our body. Well, have I said that before that just to, you know, again, fill out what we were talking about that in the new relationship with disease, that's health. So, and I don't think the Western thinking has really connected with that yet. It, it would be, it would amount to saying to say, to say, thank you for my disease. Right. And, and that is in fact what I mean, because that disease is visiting you for a goddamn reason, because you're out of balance. And if you're, if you're a disciple of balance and a disciple of love and a true disciple of spirit, you're asking questions below as well as up. In the Western world, we're brilliant at asking those bigger questions. Look at quantum science. Look at all the new age. You know, we seem to be brilliant asking about the creator up there, but we seem to be still having this thing dangling below. It's like the body. Oh, now it's, now it's out of balance and disease has to manifest on our plane in order to resurrect this bioenergetic knowledge is all we can say. So if somebody would say, you're just, you're just saying, you love my disease. Yeah, exactly is what I'm saying it because that disease is there as a messenger for the divine, a catalyst to bring you back yeah. to health. And you're quite right, you know, about that. Um, they put the hex on you because they are playing upon this divide, this master-slave relationship, you know, because I'm talk, constant, constantly trying to warn people that the master-slave relationship is not something that's just between you and the world or you and this person or you and with people in general. You, it, that is already a secondary manifestation of the master-slave relationship within yourself. That even manifests in our sports regimens and our different kinds of, you know, that's why I'm more favorable of martial arts in the East because they don't really have it in that. But in other, in other ways of uh, losing weight or feeling good about your body, it, it's all wrong because you're not learning from the body. We have a member who I've been talking to this about. She's totally committed now to losing weight and, you know, uh, signing on for this Reikian approach, right? Because she heard heard our videos and, and is totally saying it, it's changed her life. And and then I said back to her, we were talking and I said, look, but don't make sure you go gentle with yourself. This is about learning from your body as you would from a teacher. That's not a dead thing hanging on to your body. It's been beaten. It's been, it's, it's been the victim of a master-slave relationship that probably your parents and, you know, God knows what put in or just the whole culture about the way you're meant to look. And, you know, it, it gets very, very deep, doesn't it? But you've embodied this master-slave relationship, this necrophilious relationship with your own being, for goodness sake. Then if you've done that, then why are we quizzing how you get into necrophilious relationships or necrophilious situations in the external world? It starts right at home in your bioenergy. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. But maybe David could comment on that point about how do you see disease as a, as a, as a teacher? Well, I, yeah, Ronnie really summed up the physical part of that extremely well. I wouldn't add anything to that. I would just say... We've spoken many times about mental illness or, or depression or these kinds of things. This is what I try to work with a lot with people and, uh, in communicating what I've learned on my journey is that depression is also a messenger. So, and you can also see it as something that is related to some kind of autoimmune deficiency because of diet or because of lifestyle, et cetera. But it's a messenger to be dealt with and to be in communal, uh, like in some kind of communication with, instead of drowning it out and trying to just kill it on its face, try to hear what it's saying to you. And that's why when you have this fear-based reaction, which is what you were talking about, Ronnie, when you go to the doctor's office, all of a sudden they're like, okay, you got a tumor. So, you know, all the, and then you're like, oh my God, I have a tumor. And then it just, it perpetuates the problem. We forget how powerful our mind is over our body. And so, you know, when, when we, when we deal with issues in the mind, where there's an instability in your thinking and you're 
you're always living in a fear-based mentality and you're constantly obsessed with what other people's opinions are of you or pressures from family or that turns into depression. Maybe you don't like your job or something, something happened. Maybe you don't even know why you feel depressed. You're just, you're walking around and you don't know why you don't have that will, that zest for life, that energy. And you can easily go and say, well, I want to go find a drug that will just put a blanket over this. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. I mean, what does it hold off for like 0.2 seconds and then it's just gushing past the bandage? You have to deal with the source of the problem and that's valuable. But this is something that we're not used to. We're used to just everything being tenderized and softened up and made you feel better and rub your back and here's some prescriptions and here's some quick fixes. Whereas where I come from in the martial art tradition, we actually seek pain in a good, healthy way. Not 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 in a... Uh, sadomasochistic kind of way, not in a way where we're trying to abuse ourselves, which does happen, absolutely. But when done correctly, it's actually about seeking challenge for the purpose of growing. Because we recognize that in order to grow, every part of your life, from the day you were born, it was a struggle of pain and suffering in a way. And that produced what? It produced your body. It produced this miracle that you're using to navigate this reality. It produces everything. The struggle is what produces life. And so when you're trying to eliminate the struggle, which is what these socialists want to do in the political sphere, um, which is what we see in so many different realms, then you're eliminating a huge part of the human experience. And that's when, when we see the reaction to that, which is all the diseases and depressions are just getting worse, not better. Then you got to say, well, we're treating it wrong. We're looking at it wrong. And that's why, Michael, your work has been to go back to the guys who really nailed it already. We don't have to reinvent anything and try to communicate to people that this pain, this disease is a messenger. It's a passenger that's with you in order to teach you something. It's kind of like when you watch like Ebenezer Screws and he's got the three spirits that visit him and each one is equally uncomfortable for him. But it was like a necessary catalyst towards waking him up and opening up his heart chakra or whatever. So um, that's all I would add was that it, it was the same thing with depression or any kind of mental harangue. Uh, use it as a messenger and as a guide, not as just some, some adversary that you have to silence and strangle out of, out of, out of existence. It's a guide. It's a teacher. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think it is because I've experienced it in my own life that way. And also, you know, I just can't get over the fact that, look, it's not a disease. It's my disease. You know, mm, once you personalize yeah. it and you enter into a relationship with it, you're doing something very highly spiritual at that point. If, if, if this thing can kill you, then it has the power to, to give you greater life. You know, it's like the Native American Indian culture. They throw you in there with that rattlesnake. Yeah. It's going to kill you or it's going to enlighten you. And that's the way I've always looked at it. And I'm not just talking, you know, theoretically here. I, I've experienced it this way. You know, I'm a big believer in Walter Russell and Wilhelm Reich. And, and I'm also a believer in that concept. Maybe not hard devolution. That's still an open question, say, as a Michael Cremo or, you know, would, would espouse it. It's an interesting topic. But Madame Blavatsky also spoke of it and others have as well. And I can accept it to a certain degree because it makes perfect sense in the context that I said. If we're surrounded by disease, then something of our spiritual immunity is missing. And maybe this is one of the proofs of it. And so, because how do we get to this position? I mean, you talked about the parasitism. This, there's something going on. And then if you add to that, the mental, you know, like you say, the depressions and the suicide and then all the cocktail of neurosis, all of this must have an etiology. And mm -hmm. obviously, a man who is thinking in terms of golden ages would say that was the one thing missing in the golden age. These, these types of infections and illnesses didn't come about because we were on top of it, you know, from a bioenergetic point of view. But go ahead, Ronnie. 
Well, you know, it's interesting too, because <clears throat> part of, part of the whole agenda and the program that gets rolled out from, you know, the infectious diseases and the current state of affairs that people are experiencing population wide simply because they're completely out of balance. They're, you know, you know, this whole vaccine thing and the whole argument with it is completely ridiculous when you put it in its proper context. Like the idea of a vaccine makes sense. Right to to ward off infectious diseases, but the the administration, the the utilization of of a whole black magic or range of cocktail ingredients. When you actually go to the CDC and you look at the ingredients, um, you very quickly you realize like this is all these are all toxins, these are neurotoxins, these are all things that could actually kill me. And then you start to realize, based on the evidence that it's not safe and effective by any means, yet that's that's the story that's put out. And the reason people believe that is very much because they've been feared and guilted into it. Yeah. You know, for example, like if you're a mother and you choose not to vaccinate your child, you immediately get put on a list. You immediately get guilted and shamed into and, and your child is essentially, you know, a danger to my vaccinated child, but my vaccinated child got vaccinated so they wouldn't have to, you know, get an infection. So shouldn't that protect you from my unvaccinated child? Like the whole thing is ridiculous. But my, my yeah. point with that is that the state of affairs, the health issues that we're dealing with aren't because we have a vaccine deficiency or an antibiotic deficiency. These are materialistic, scientismic responses um, to a current state of affairs that have a root cause, which is everything that you're talking about, Michael, everything we've been talking about, um, you know, not dealing with the root cause of the issue. Um, you know, it's, it's very, it's very deep, but if people actually took care of their health and they took accountability and they took responsibility for their body, their holy temple, and they actually treated it like a holy temple, just like when you go to a church, it's blasphemy to have a fungal infection or mold infections or or dirt or cobwebs or, or, or you know, cursing and uh, negativity inside of inside of a church, right? That's blasphemy. Well, what about this this holy temple? Nobody really thinks about that. And that's where God resides, right? It's not something outside of myself. Like, yeah, like, God is is within the creator, whatever is within all life. It's omnipresent. But what about within me? And I think that's the biggest that's the biggest thing that happens. That's certainly what happened for me when I started to take responsibility for my health and not put it in the hands of people in white trench coats that possibly traumatized me when I came out of a womb in a sterilized hospital. Um, you know, when you first get, that's a, that's a whole nother subject, you know, thinking about like the, the origination of trauma from when we were first born and, and slapped or pulled out of our mother's womb and taken from our mother. And then the, the shame or the resentment that's subliminally created towards our mother, towards the feminine. It's obviously another subject, but very well, important her before you even come out of the womb, she's already at the time of, uh, of the moment of the birth, what they're poisoning her blood with. And even sometimes during, you know, the, pre, the, the, the time before, before in, in pregnancy, they're giving her pills, they're giving her gases, they're giving her all sorts of poisons that is affecting the consciousness and that, let alone the biology of the child. And I think it's working on the Shen right from that point on to yes. poison her system. And then she may be smoking fags or, you know, up to other no good, taking other medications or even illicit drugs. I mean, you know, some of them on heroin, right? But they have to have that baby. So it, it really is. It's it's a complicity from the system 
Uh, and of course, well, our job is just to point out, isn't it, uh, these pitfalls, but people have to pick up the slack and look at it for themselves. Like all the stuff we've said, you got to try it for yourself. Try a different diet. You got to try it. I can only suggest one thing. If, if we're talking about subliminals doing this or that doing this or your doctor doing that, you've got to go in there with your antenna up to, you know, see it for yourselves and prove it for yourselves because we're not here making statements. You know, there's an entire culture of disease and sickness the world over. You've got to be able to sort of understand that, you know, uh, and, and go and prove it for yourself. But see, remember you, one of the first questions you asked me when I was on your show was about the nature of fear. And we, and we talked about that. And later on, as I was listening back to the show and thinking about it, you know, it suddenly dawned on me. It's just my latest article as well, uh, Fear of Wisdom, Hatred of Wisdom. What we fear is truth. Hmm. You know, we, we, we addressed it slightly differently. But now it's also to bring out this important footnote. The whole human race is in the fucking mess it is because the human beings hate truth. But the thing is that that truth is not – I'm not talking about a truth that comes down institutionally – you know, from uh, your parents or from, say, the school, that, that's bad enough. But see, we eat off that. We're not hating that. We're, we're accepting that. The truth I'm talking about is the truth that emanates from within your own being. And somehow that's been occluded. Somehow that, you know, we've, we've got a mentality of such schizoid. We're in a schizogenic society. You know, people say, oh, there's only one and so many people are schizophrenic. Hey, I agree with that. That's true. But what about the borderlines? What about the schizoid culture? Now the ratings are, the demographics way higher. They just want to keep on pointing at a full-blown diagnosed schizophrenic. Jesus, you're telling the whole Petri dish. The whole of our society is, is schizoid. But the point being that truth emanate, is, is a voice, like you said, a kind of a language that's emanating from within, of which we are, we, we, you know, the radios are tuned, it's just static. We're not hearing that anymore. And, I, and the way I look at your work is that you are covering that. You're covering that aspect that try to balance your spiritual insights with this attunement. And I ask the people listening to us now to systematically go out there and look at just at the alternative community, right? For instance, I've done this myself and I know the answer. And then spread it out to say the general new age community. How many people are really that healthy? It has a bearing. Maybe there's a lot, maybe there's not too much. I don't think there's too much. So everybody listening to this, you know, go and check it out for yourselves and then wonder why they're flying around the room with all of the Apollonian stuff. But you very rarely, rarely hear. And this then taken historically is also true too because a lot of religion and a lot of even the new age religion is anti-world anti-nature and anti-body so factor these things in and realize what a tremendous mysteria you've been handed you need to negate this you have to bring the body online so when we call this understanding reality it's because the one filter that that uh, will calibrate you correctly to even take on that work is the body Hmm. Right, you can't understand reality because reality starts in your roots, in your in your grounding, and I'm a huge advocate of that. You know, so I just wanted to bring that up. That again, hatred of wisdom, fear of truth. Let's face, the, you know, if you really want to diagnose the problem, then you have to do it head on without any idiotic prevarication and bias. That's such a brilliant point. I, 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 I mean, that even I have to meditate on that some more in my own personal life. And and where, where are my blind spots? Where am I avoiding? a higher level of wisdom, you know, with everything that I think I know and everything that I've, I've learned up to this point, there's always another level. There's always another degree to truth. There's always another, there's always another vantage point where I can see more of the, more of the puzzle. And I, I think that's exactly what it is, Michael. I think this avoidance of responsibility, this absence of responsibility is, you know, from a, from an entrepreneurial personal development tr- perspective, you know, I was giving a lecture um, a few months ago and I was talking about the fear of failure. And I, and I told them, I actually don't think the fear of failure is accurate. I think it's better 
better accurate to say a fear of success because fear is the fear of failure. I should say failure is actually a scapegoat because then I don't have to try because I failed. See, it didn't work. But the fear of success is a much higher pursuit or it's a much higher thing to work through because what if this does work? What if this diet or this cleanse or this business venture or this book that I want to put out that scares me, but I still want to put it out. It's my, it's, you know, following my highest excitement or whatever. What if it succeeds? Oh, then I have no excuses. I actually have to raise the bar. I have more responsibility all of a sudden. I think that's what we're dealing with in our culture is that there's an absence of responsibility because, you know, again, with this example of, you know, being born in a hospital or something, that whole agenda, whether it's, it's thought out or it's just accidental, I don't think it's accidental, is that now you defer your responsibility instead of seeking your mother or your father you now defer your responsibility to those people in the white trench coats or the government or the banking industry or their military complex and, and, or whatever, whatever, whatever institution is, is presenting itself for your ailment. You defer your responsibility to them because then you don't have to deal with the consequences, right? Like, oh, they'll, they'll bail me out. Like the whole banking situation the last couple of years, like, oh, we, we don't have to worry about it. They're just going to bail us out. But who, who fits the bill, right? So it's like, this is this is what we're dealing with in our world and this is the this is to me the 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 origination of the health crisis of the the spiritual crisis that we're dealing with is is deferring responsibility but that's the hero's journey isn't it that's the path to to hear heroism or to courage is to adopt responsibility. That's, that's one of the things I really appreciate from Jordan Peterson is he keeps harping on this idea of like, bear the burden of responsibility, bear the burden on your back because it will make you stronger. And that's what you need. You don't need to give over your responsibility because that will weaken you. Stop doing things that weaken you start bearing the burden of responsibility and you will become strong enough to, to, um, you know, to hold that. And if you imagine if we had a society of people that did that, even to a little extent, how much it would change in terms of what Just we could accomplish. Just a little bit. And that's what I say to people too. Some of these things might feel like extreme measures of all this change you need to do. And that can be overwhelming. But, um, there was something that was pointed out to me early on in my martial arts career, which was that uh, do everything with the five to 10% rule, like just a small percentage of change. So, you know, get up just a little bit earlier if you're wanting to accomplish more in your day or go to bed just a little bit earlier or read 10 minutes a day, read a book for 10 minutes a day. You know, if you read 10 minutes a day, how many books you can get through in a year? It's ridiculous. Um, listen to shows like this that are not just about fluff and, you know, headlines and stuff, but that are deep. There's some deep thinking going and going on here. We're really contemplating things. Um, you know, if you're changing anything with your diet, don't go cold turkey. Are you kidding yourself? You're going to, you're going to set yourself up for failure. That's just, it's, I've seen it happen too, too many times. I've done it to myself. It's horrible. So do things in a small incremental change and then track progress. So track your progress. This is another thing. This is why I harped so, uh, so much on the self-esteem subject. And Michael and I've talked about on this show as well, which is that a lot of us are, we want to make these changes in our lives, but we've got this fear of self-responsibility and fear of success. Like you're saying, Ronnie, but we don't even have the internal fortitude and self value to embark on the journey to begin with. So we set ourselves up for failure because we're like, well, this, this thing that I'm going to do, this change I'm going to make is going to help me feel better about myself and it's going to change my life. But in order to actually start the journey, you kind of have to already begin that 
development of, of having some value for yourself to begin with in order to go at this journey of making yourself better, right? So you've, this is yeah. why you've got, you can't be one focused on one thing and you've got to start with this small little change. I think we were talking about this before the show. Michael was bringing some good things forward about even just when you're starting a project. Um, you know, don't stay focused on one thing all the time because then your value will run out and then you'll just exhaust yourself. You know, try to let time take its course. Don't rush. And this was something I had to learn because I'm a hard headed Aries and I go, I go for the kill right off the gate. I had to learn how to find patience in my life. Take the patience, be patient with myself. That's a huge thing. Don't beat yourself up every time you make a mistake. You know what I mean? It's a journey and it takes time. Well, we spoke of this. You're totally right. We spoke about this on the, when I was interviewed by Ronnie about when you talk to people a lot, like I have to do in readings, doing readings for them and they're going on about this and that problem. And it's a recurrent theme that they have a terribly negative relationship with time, almost none at all. Uh, it's not that, see, people have already embodied this idea that time is your enemy. No, you are time's enemy. Time is never your enemy. If it was, you wouldn't accomplish anything of your desires. Think about it. Time has allowed you to, to manifest any desire you want. It's not your enemy. It's your friend. You are the enemy of time. And the reason why you can't get all the things done that we're talking about is because you misuse time. You misuse time. All the things that you're doing are shit. Stop it. Right? Watching those idiotic shows on television or, you know, just, just distracting yourself from your needs. You see, so if you examine life, it's not that you don't have enough time. You have more than enough time. It's that you, 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 you spent it talking to idiots. Slaving for family members who never pay you back, trusting in the advice of parents who are tyrants, literally actually tyrants who never rewarded you for the good that you did, but always punished you for the bad that you did. You know, you're in servitude and so on. And so a time does come, like, you know, they call it the dark night of the soul. And it's not necessarily a religious event. It's, it's a return to who you are. It's a very subjective experience where, you know, you're introverting a little bit more and you're doing some of this calculus that we're talking about. And along those lines comes, and if it feels very ungrounded, then you ground it by looking at the state of your physicality. You know, like that mentor of mine said, hey, you don't need that. And that was all he had to say. And it changed my life forever. And it changed it to bring me straight up against conflicts that lasted for more than 10 years. That nearly destroyed what, you know, it didn't take much to destroy it, but whatever was left of a family unit, and that wasn't much, that went through turmoil. People, people, you know, people were put against others. It was a frightful nightmare, right? Just because we wanted to be vegetarians after this point, and we had to bloody fight for it tooth and nail. So, as I say, you know, on the path of enlightenment, you'll know that you're on the right track when you're getting all the flack. So, there is a will, but you also talked, Ronnie and I, about the fact that, and you just encapsulated it brilliantly, because where do I get the bioenergy to tap into my bioenergy? Right. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm exhausted and wiped out, the thing looks right. paradoxical. Yeah, I'm all for what you guys are saying. Uh, but I lack the energy to tap into the energy. So we have no, we have no Western model. The lies that have been taught, you know, it's like what Aaron Rousseau was saying, we're torn to shreds. There's so many things that are not said in school and college and university, so many things that the parents have not taught us. And that's what we have to then pick up the slack in our own time and teach us. Now, actually, there is a resolution to that, and that is work with the, you know, martial arts and Qigong and Tai Chi that know all about that, and slowly, incrementally, you know, you'll wake, you'll awaken that Qi. But, the all important thing is that will first require you to to change your relationship with time. And I don't know if it was clear before when you and I talked, you know, the message. The message I was making at that time to the, to the listeners was it's entirely in your hands. You have all the time in the world, but you must make it. You must completely go for the long haul, you know, because a lot of what we're talking about, like you said, about checking back and, 
you know, checklisting yourself and going, it also implies going for the long haul. I've done that in my career. I've not done anything, you know, just for short-term successes. I've thought in terms of very many years, you know, to, to take a thing through to ferment. You know, they say the greatest water is the freshest, but the greatest wine is the oldest. So you have to learn this fermentation process of being able to think 20, 30 years of this process that you're going to take on. Of course, our culture's demagogues don't, they've obliterated that. You were telling earlier about the cell phone culture. It's all to concertini your life so into just fractions of seconds that you're practically robotic. Your, your relationship with, you know, the process of desire even and how to fulfill a desire, it's all being obliterated. You know, suicide and, and, and homicide are the only two, you know, results. Uh, an endless uh, ingestion of their happy pills, you know, it's, it's really dire. But, you know, we're talking about things that are fundamental, heal, all heals, you know, by spending more time in nature, cultivating an interest in gardening or herbs or arts, martial arts, qigong. There's multiple ways, you know, multiple ways of, of uh, reinitiating yourself. But it will, I believe, mean a fundamental change in how you deal with the, the calendar and the clock and just cut the fuck out of slaving for other people. And try to build, you know, bring those minutes and hours and even weeks and months to yourself again. And then also think in terms of the long haul. Do do not fall for the world's hoop jumping where I get a reward. I do this, I get a reward. I do this, I get a reward. You know, in that more instantaneous, caffeinated way. Try to think again in broad terms over the whole movement of your life. It's another thing that needs to be factored in here. Brilliantly put, so brilliantly put. I mean, you know, I think of the the, the reward punishment system that we're in, and the the pleasure reward um, or the pleasure pain cycle that we're basically trapped in, where we're avoiding pain and seeking pleasure, and we're always tapping that that reward dopamine center in the brain, which again leads to this this adrenal burnout, um, even to extreme degrees of um, Parkinson's disease. Is, you know, Parkinson's is a demyelination and a dysregulation of your motor functions. And it's really like an adrenal shutdown where you've lost your dopamine. It's basically a dopamine deficiency and a demyelination of the nerve fibers. And what we find out is when we start to help people um, uh, not re-regulate, but um, get more dopamine back into their adrenal glands, back into their body and get their, their pancreas and all that working back online, then they start to get better. And so it's kind of interesting, like there, you know, there's, there's so many things that come up for me when I think of like psychosclerosis and, and anthrosclerosis of like the heart, like the blockages of the heart. Well, there's also psychosclerosis, which is a hardening of our thoughts, a hardening of the mind. We can't change our mind about things. We can't think differently. And, you know, you're only as old as the last time you changed your mind. And that's such an important perspective, like timeless mind, ageless body. Everyone's trying to seek the fountain of youth. Every, I mean, it's full blown in my world, right? I'm, I'm, I'm doing the same thing, like studying ancient alchemy and the philosopher's stone and the emerald tablet and, you know, how these great, uh, these great things came to be and looking at like old herbalism philosophy and systems like the three treasures and Ayurveda and shamanism. And going deep down the, the, you know, the entheogen pathway to get a greater grasp of like what's really going on beyond the veil. What's really go, what did the shamans really see? How do I see like a shaman? Not just trying to do those things because I want a backdoor to God and I'm trying to like, you know, I'm trying to like get out of my own, my own issues, but I actually want to see what's on the other end of this, this kind of hologram and see what's beyond what's, what's inside of me. And I think all these things are so essential. Um, 
to working through the neurosis, working through the psychosclerosis, working through the pain pleasure cycle, because as long as we're chasing pleasure and we're avoiding pain, we're going to be in that slave master dynamic. We're going to constantly, but we're going to be biologically dependent, you know, and that's why people are pushing the, you know, whether it's the caffeine or the coffee or the marijuana or the tobacco or the pornography or whatever, um, the masochistic kind of behaviors, whether that's even a positive thing, you know, with like excessive cleansing where somebody is like on a raw food diet for 15 years and they're like, they're catabolic, catabolic, breaking down, cleansing. The whole world is toxic. All my food is toxic. So they minimize everything to like five different things that they can actually eat without freaking themselves out. And then they go gaunt and anorexic. And then everybody thinks, oh, that's what a vegan is. That's what a, that's what it looks like when you go raw food. I don't want to do that. It's like, no, 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 no. That, that's, that's something else. That's a pathology of the mind. Um, and taking something that actually could be very, very helpful and running it into the ground. Um, so, well, with, anyway, with, you, point, with all these things, with all these things, what I try to say to people is ask yourself, is this thing serving me or am I serving it? Like, right. you know, that it can get to that. This is where you understand where the extremes are. Like, if you want to partake in anything, you have to decide, okay, is this something that I want to do? Why do I want to do it? Is it beneficial? Um, am I willing to accept consequences? Because everything has consequences. Uh, there's people that I know that overtrain all the time. They go to the gym all the time and they get to a point where they're addicted to that dopamine release that happens when you're, when you're working out and all that kind of stuff. Nothing wrong with dopamine releases. Not, nothing wrong with having, but it can be extreme. And, uh, you know, anything, you just have to find where's that extreme and you'll know for yourself because you'll start to see, Hey, I'm becoming a slave to this thing. I need this thing to get by to survive now. I can't be happy without it. Well, then now you're its slave. So the master slave dynamic happens with people. It happens with things. Yeah. It happens with what you put in your body, what you put in your mind, etc. But don't accept our word for it. Go and test yourselves to see how much time is wasted serving other people. You know, th yeah, these are all true. things to actually uh, observe. We're not making any statements. We're asking you to observe it. I believe that you have all the time in the world for anything you want to put your mind to, to even become a PhD in even the most physicalized sense, take a class. Anything you're telling me you can't have time for, I don't want to, never have accepted that. Mm. Right? Because that time is there, but somebody else has, get, has got their hooks in you. I don't care if it's granny or granddad or friends or mates or some other nonsense. You have the time, but you are not allowed to have the time because uh, so much, you know, it takes another vision to see how much the world is eating you up, eating up your time. So this is a very spiritual work. It really is right from the off. But one one practical question I had when it comes to practice, we talked about Wilhelm Reich and, and all of that, uh, who's probably the most important, you know, teacher for shadow work, getting in touch with that body's intelligence. But right off the bat, how would you rate tapping? I, I look at tapping because especially if you do tapping, you know, with the sort of uh, affirmations. Mm. What do you think about that as awakening the spirit, you know, the, 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 the language of your body? Do you endorse that or can you say something about yeah. that, Ronnie? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think tapping's powerful. There's a whole EFT movement. And um, yeah, it, one of the things I think it really does is it helps bring make you really present, right? And it helps kind of bring your faculties all into alignment. So like, for example, if I'm like up here, I'm, I'm stressed or something, I'm kind of like fragmented, then immediately I can bring all my, my faculties into present moment by just like, okay, boom, 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 whatever my intention is, I want to feel peace, I want to feel congruent, I want to feel powerful, 
I don't know, whatever, whatever it is, it's, it's, it's shifting a pattern, right? It's, it's readjusting a pattern that very easily without something like that could could go awry. Um, there's obviously, um, I'm not, I'm not like an expert on tapping. Um, I think it's really powerful. I think for me, the main thing that I get out of that is that I'm, I'm engaging my body and my mind together in the present moment. And I, and I think that really is the biggest issue that we face is, is being present, being embodied in the present moment, moment by moment by moment. Because like what you mentioned about time, I know my own struggles with time is, you know, not so much anymore, but like my old ideas about time, what most people deal with is this, this, addiction to managing time when time cannot be managed. We can only manage ourselves and choose how we're going to use time, how we're going to make it, how we're going to effectively maximize the time that we have. Um, and I think things like tapping and even muscle testing, different things like that, they bring us into the present moment. Cause if I'm walking through a health food store and I'm looking at supplements, there's like a million different things. What do I choose? Well, easily I can grab something and I can do something, something as simple as like muscle testing, you know, just does my fingers break if I test something or is it really strong? You know, all these little things yeah. like, you know, they might be placebo or not, but I've tested it against things. No, I've even had, I mean, I've even, I even, even had it to the point where I started testing people and I, you know, there was this one, you know, at one point a while back, there was this girl that I was talking to and I wasn't quite sure. I was like, you know, there's like sexual attraction and all that, but there was something a little off and I just had her grab my arm and I just quickly did a, a little, one of those little muscle tests and it broke. And I was like, okay. And I was like, all right, there got you it. That's, you know, so it's, I found it, out it, about this. <laughs> I found out about this by accident in 19. 19- 91, I think, oh, I used to take the bus to work, you know, from 4 a.m. in the morning. And you don't want to be taking the buses at 4 a.m. morning in California after Reagan let all the loonies out, right? So that was an experience. On comes this guy, and I just wear shades, you know, and listen to my Walkman, right? Uh, and on comes this Japanese dude, sits down sort of in front of me anyway. He couldn't see that I was looking at him, right? And he starts doing all this tapping and this, you know, these body, it's like a kind of a self acupuncture. I'd never seen this before in my life, but I was curious. First, I thought he was crazy because everybody else on the bus was. But then I realized this is no fucking crazy man. He's cleaning himself of the energy in this fucking place. Hmm. You see? And so a small thing like that. And I never saw him again, but I knew and I, I went and researched it then. You know, and sure enough, I found out all about, you know, it's, there is this kind of tapping and acupuncture. Maybe I'll put some links below, you know. But uh, yeah, there's all sorts of things that can be done, isn't it? Without having to commit a bit in a big way, you can do it incrementally, and then you move from one stage to the next, and you affirm, you affirm, you know, that these are working for you, and then finally you work up to then, you know, going more professionally and and reaching out to people that you can trust. But the muscle testing is very important because it will indeed prevent you from wasting your time with a certain person or a certain teacher or or, or products. Absolutely. And I'm a huge, huge believer in kinesiology. I think people should study that as an absolutely. I mean, when you said going into the doctor and listening to all that hex being put on you and all, how would you double check? You know, and, and it's so easy to do. Is this guy telling me the truth or is he not? Right. And if you muscle test on it, you're going to have the facts. Or even if you go to somebody with that question, who's an expert kinesiologist, these are these teachings are in the world today. I, you know, as part of my my whole thing to always say, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's already there. But, you know, uh, I think there are cures, you know, to every single thing in the world. And sometimes it just takes us to have a new perspective on things. And I'm really glad to be able to talk to you about this. And I'm sure we'll have to have you back on to even further this out. But any final remarks from you guys about about, about yeah. this? 
Well, I just want to, you, you remember the, the book, Think and Grow Rich. And um, one of the things that I, well, there's two things I pulled out of that book. One of them is what the mind of man can conceive and believe it can achieve. So simple, so powerful, such a powerful reminder. But then there was another quote that really always stuck out to me, which is the seed of, or, or the solution, to, the solution is always built into the seed of the, pro, no, something like that. We're basically, Every problem has the seed of its solution built into it. So there's no problem or no challenge or no obstacle that's ever created without the solution directly built into it. So that, that kind of sums up everything we've been talking about is you don't avoid this, the challenge. You take it on and you go into it because the solution isn't outside of it. It's directly in it. And the more we can go into it, then we're going we're gonna to be able to liberate it I agree. Right. The, the, any problem the mind of man can create, the mind of man can solve. Yeah. You know, any because you did create mind, it, right? You did create it. How many? I, but we're not being taught by our institutionalized knowledge. That's, that's knowledge that's geared not to empower you, but to disempower you. So, you know, call us conspiracy nuts or whatever. Fucking, who cares? You go out and prove it for yourself. The knowledge that's been handed to your children, even in scientific terms, is a million miles behind. And in neuroscience and in quantum science, they're saying something that 600 years ago, you're not going to be proving this in the idealism introduction, 600 years ago, Jakob Baum and Isaac Luria and Nicholas Kuza and Meister Eckhart were addressing things that the quantum sciences are still stumped. Their entire movement right, has grown to a halt because they can't answer the things that 600 years ago, men who were shoemakers, okay? Jakob Baum was a shoemaker. He answered it. So, but the guys with the PhDs from Princeton are lost, still can't get to it. So, to hell with that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's incredible to see this time actually, and this should leave us on a positive note. Everything we've discussed here to say that there's a solution to these problems, and that's all I ever told myself when I was going through some of the darkest, most challenging times in my life, which I believe shaped me and helped me. Um, when I was going through those times, I just kept repeating to myself, "There's a solution here. There's a way." to resolve this. I might not be able to get rid of it completely. I can't edit reality and make everything just ponies and rainbows, but I can I can navigate my way through this. I can learn from this. I can grow stronger from this. There's a way out of this. And that uh, this is something I've really enjoyed about the art of grappling and wrestling was the idea of when somebody's pinning you down with all their force and leverage and you're sitting there feeling like, hey, there's no way out of this. It feels like I'm being pressed into the ground and I'm, I'm getting claustrophobic and I can't breathe. And then when you let your mind relax for a moment and you just focus on, okay, let me just find a pocket of air and just breathe. And then you're breathing and then your body relaxes a little bit. And then your mind wakes up a little bit more. And then you start to see solutions where you couldn't see it because you were in a state of panic. And then you find a way to reverse that position. And now you're the one on top. And it's just like, that to me is, is, is proof in just a small little measurement of how Anything in your life, in your mind, in your work, in your relationships, and even the way we're addressing the bigger problems of the world, um, become solution-oriented. Don't become overly pessimistic. It's important to be aware of the negative influences and all these things that we talk about, but not to the point where you become like you want to give up and you, you throw away everything. That, that's, that's, what they, that's, that's what any adversary wants you to do. If you study the ancient warriors and how they would come up to the cliff and they would have war drums beating outside your gates and they would try to cut off all accesses in and out of your castle and they would try to starve you and intimidate you into submission before they would invade 
it's because that's they posture. They're posturing. This is part of strategy. So if you have this system in the world, and we're talking about the Aaron Russo's coming out to expose this and so many others, of trying to get people into a, a mind of enslavement so that they're easy to, to lead. They want one leash for many necks, so they need these people to be compliant. Well, what do you do? You soften them up. You beat the battle drums. You keep everybody in a state of anxiety. You keep cutting off their energy supply system so that they become their own worst enemy. That's the whole goal. It's it's as easy as understanding how chess works. This, these people are chess masters. So what you have to do is become a chess master yourself and learn how to take that sovereignty back inch by inch and get your energy flow right, get your balance right, get your get everything in your life to a place of balance so that you can uh, become empowered. I mean, that's that's how you unslave. So um, guys, I think this was a great conversation. Uh, Ronnie, fantastic. I just want to encourage you to keep doing the work you're doing. Uh, your website looks amazing. Do you have any new episodes coming up on your show, any new books, any new seminars or anything you're doing? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, we had the second interview with Michael that's going to be airing on the official podcast. You can find it on uh, my YouTube channel right now. It's it's going off right now. And if you haven't checked out either one of those interviews, I highly recommend it. You can easily just type in Michael Tessarian, Ronnie Landis. You'll find both of those pop up in your search. Um, you know, my website, RonnieLandis.net, it has my my podcast, which is called The Holistic Human Optimization Show. And that's really a show that is focused on bringing world-class thought leaders from every different field that's of interest to me of the whole human experience, but centering it around human optimization. So that's physical health optimization. It's psychological optimization, emotional optimization, spiritual, metaphysical um, even we even get into some relationship dynamics and things of that nature to really help empower people and give them tools and perspectives that they most likely won't get from other interviews because I'm used to being on both sides of that conversation, being interviewed and interviewing. So it's, it's a unique type of dynamic that occurs in those conversations. And I, I bring people on that I'm genuinely wanting to probe, you know, like for with you and me, Michael, maybe we wouldn't have actually came into contact if I did not have that reason to reach out to you. And now look where we are. So, you know, I really love that show. I really, if people have a deeper interest in this and um, I know we may have kind of hopscotch from so many different things here, but if you really want to go a lot deeper and get more of a structured um, and systematic type of informational um, education on these topics, then, you know, go to my website. There's a lot of free resources. I have a lot of online material um, and things of that nature that people can take advantage of. And, um, other than that, I'm just really excited to be here. Really grateful for the opportunity. It's so incredible being able, being able to go back and forth with both of you and share some of the, the little rants and riffs and tangentials that I don't always get the opportunity to do on other shows because, you know, this, this, this demographic and this context is so unique. And so it gives me an opportunity to just be unfiltered about certain things that I'd have to just kind of like uh, sometimes dance around. So thank you. Yeah. There's no political correctness here. But again, thanks for the wisdom. This whole thing of the physical, you know, equaling the spiritual is, is vital, vital connection for people, especially in the, where there's enough pollutants in the world around us from coming from all levels, you know, both from a vampiristic point of view. I and mean, we can probably talk about that next time because what a lot of what you're talking about pertains to that, but we'll leave that for another day. And just, uh, as you say, the, the simple consolidation of a person's energy and time. We'll explore this again. Thanks so much, Ronnie, for the compliments. And hope to be back on your show to explore some of that stuff as well and have you back as well on Unslaved. Absolutely. Thank you so much.
And thank you to all of our members. Uh, great to have you join us again. Glad to be back here. We got another show coming up next week with Brian Keating. That's going to be very fascinating, uh, exploring his work. And we've also got Michael's new, uh, introduction part, part one to his idealism series. So uh, very much looking forward to that. That'll be released later on today, probably about the time this episode archive is up. So stay tuned for that, everybody. Thank you so much. We got a huge, New year coming up in 2019 for Unslaved, so stay tuned here, and we'll catch you next time on the Unslaved podcast. Cheers.